shamanism is, is fundamentally a, a primordial science. It's what came before science and also what came before religions. And it's a practice of moving into other states of consciousness fundamentally for the understanding of facts and the expression of them in a, a form of typically mythology that explains a greater context to what's going on both for the people involved and typically the shaman's society or tribe. And so the, the idea of shamanism is a really a field of study that goes back tens of thousands of years or longer to the very first origins of exploration uh, about consciousness, uh, spirit, which is a way of, of talking about the, the life force, animism, and just energy force of the universe, and um, ultimately higher dimensional states of consciousness. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. In today's episode, Paul welcomes back Hamilton Souther, the CEO, Master Shaman, and Chairman Founder of Blue Morpho, and the co-founder of One Energy Global and Source Independent Entertainment. Hamilton is a visionary leader, speaker, author, and renowned master shaman. He is an international leader for Amazonian sustainability and conservation. A big thank you to our premier sponsors, Bioptimizers, Paleo Valley and Organifi, and our podcast sponsor, Wild Pastures. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying all the amazing products that they produce. Please check the show notes for links and details. The topic of today's episode with Paul and Hamilton is shamanic consciousness. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I have Hamilton Souther back again. We're going to talk about shamanic consciousness. I'm hoping some of you or lots of you listened to our podcast that we did together last time. I think it was called the Plant Medicine User's Guide. We put a lot of effort into that one. It was a long but thorough podcast, probably the most thorough recording out there anywhere in the world that I know of on the topic. So, uh, Hamilton, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here and really excited about this podcast. Yeah, me too. How? What kind of feedback did you get from our previous podcast? Got really positive feedback. Um, most people just said that, like you just mentioned, it's a really comprehensive guide to the plant medicine space and the visionary plant psychedelic space. And what important information that was to have chronicled in one location. And they were just really thankful for it. Yeah, I got the same kind of feedback. I have a podcast coming up with Robert Forte. Are you familiar with him? Uh, no, I'm not. Oh, he's one of the pioneers of the whole psychedelic movement. He was friends with Houston Smith. He was working with Timothy Leary and Ram Dass and all those guys. He was part of that tribe. Hmm. And he's like a historian on the whole thing. So I'm going to have a talk with him about the whole history of it and get the inside scoop on, you know, the, the whole everything. It's, it, I've had a couple, I've listened to a couple of interviews with him. And they're fantastic. He's really sharp. So it's just exciting to be able to look at some of the developmental history of this stuff, as well as the current issues and, and things we're going to talk about. So the first question I wanted to ask you, Hamilton, just kind of lay some groundwork because, you know, the word shamans used a lot today but like a lot of words it's kind of losing its meaning and i think it means something different to everybody like god does with that in mind i wondered if you could <clears throat> give us what your <clears throat> excuse me what your shall we say definition is of what a shaman is but what also what shamanism is and 
why shaman have been very important to native tribes throughout antiquity. So what, what is shamanism? What is a shaman? And why have shaman been so important to native tribes throughout history? Yeah, shamanism is, is fundamentally a, a primordial science. It's what came before science and also what came before religions. And it's a practice of moving into other states of consciousness fundamentally for the understanding of facts and the expression of them in a, a form of typically mythology that explains a greater context to what's going on both for the people involved and typically the shaman's society or tribe. And so the, the idea of shamanism is a really a field of study that goes back tens of thousands of years or longer to the very first origins of exploration uh, about consciousness, uh, spirit, which is a way of, of talking about the, the life force, animism, and just energy force of the universe, and um, ultimately higher dimensional states of consciousness, and this intersection of, of the individual, this greater mystical context, and what can be discovered or found, which would be uh, you know, right out of any other understanding of discovery. And the practice of shamanism is, is vast. There's so many different kinds, depending on the culture, but they all have something unique in common, which is the movement into a state that could be called other. There's, there's a different state that is acquired, some kind of trance state, theta state, dream state, ecstatic state, etc., that an individual can go into. And what's unique about it is that they come back out of that state into an ability to converse with and communicate with their society, bringing back invaluable information, something very unique, purposeful, of great importance, either um, a kind of technology, a kind of healing, a kind of medicine, or a kind of answer for the need of that society. And um, that's uh, kind of unique to shamanic cultures and ubiquitous across the planet. And so that's sort of shamanism. And a shaman is an individual who has been uh, steeped in the arts of shamanism, who has studied and learned and trained within those arts, typically either directly from spirit, directly from nature, or under the tutelage of a lineage. So where it gets passed down from you know, one generation to the next, then that those people are trained in the enculturalization, the understandings, the techniques, and the practices that ultimately convert them from kind of what you would think of as like normal person not having these extraordinary experiences to someone who's very proficient in having these extraordinary experiences and who can typically do it at will for the need of themselves and the, the tribe or their society. And those people are both medicine people. So they're like doctors of their tribes. And you have to think going way back in prehistory, this is where there are no other kinds of doctors. These are the only doctors. They use all different kinds of plants and really kind of essential elements from the earth, like different kinds of animal parts and different kinds of plant matter to be able to make medicines. They go into these altered states of consciousness. In them, they can, can wield energies and vibrations and higher dimensional states, which are actually scientifically provable. They're facts. And in doing so, they can enact massive change to themselves, the individuals around them, and the environment. And they've played a primordial role in the development of humans and the development of human society and human civilization. And to the day, they still exist all over the world and in 
places like where I live in the Amazon, they are actually uh, at a very important part and a very highly respected part of the society. And so they're revered for their role in society and the unique benefits that they can provide. And that even includes societies now that have Western medicine. So they're seen as having a unique importance and a unique uh, perspective and understanding. They have a unique form of knowledge that has been unbroken, passed down now for thousands of years. And they have an ability to impart that knowledge and wisdom, uh, both for the healing purposes and for uh, guidance and teaching. And they have a high level of respect. What was the third, the third category? The uh, third was why have they been so important to native tribes throughout antiquity? Yeah. And they're important. But I think you've kind of covered that. I kind of covered it. Yeah. The importance is that they're a unique person within the tribe that can fundamentally guide and support the tribe in all aspects, including political aspects. And many times the shamans were also the chiefs of the tribe. Right. And it's also interesting, too, because in my studies, sometimes a shaman would be a medicine man, but often in tribes, they had a medicine man and a shaman. And the medicine men were more along the lines, I think, of a combination of an osteopathic or a naturopathic physician and a bone setter, and but more oriented toward knowledge of plants and making, you know, healing medicines for things like wounds and illnesses of various types. But the shaman seems to be the one throughout history that had the capacity to communicate with other dimensions and other beings more so than uh, an earth oriented practice of a medicine man. Is, is that something you would agree with? Yeah, I do. I, I think that uh, you'll see now in cultures where there's a, a mix of those, but like, for instance, down here in the Amazon, they have your Sobadora or your Sobador, and that's a person who's the bone setter. And then they have the equivalent of like the person who sells or knows how to make poultices and tinctures and things like that. And then you have your medico vegetalista or your shaman, which is a person who wields a kind of medicine that comes from those higher dimensional states or uses visionary plants. They have a unique connection with the universe, source, God, divinity, light, you know, the creative elements of, of the world. And they seem to have an ability to tap into extraordinary or miraculous kinds of understandings that we describe as higher dimensional states. Yeah. Some of the couple of notes I wrote just while you were talking there is in my, you know, I've, Joseph, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen the books Joseph Campbell's written yeah, that have. have a lot on shamanism? Yes, I have. I've got the big, the really big ones, the, the very beautiful high gloss, kind of like coffee table style, very expensive, but very beautiful. But he has a lot on shamanism in those books. I think there's three of them. And uh, I've studied those. And he has, he and others, I've got a lot of books on shamanism in my library, probably, I don't know, 70 of them. But there's a number of my books that show hunting maps where the shaman would go into a trance state, communicate with the spirit of the buffalo, the elk, the deer, whatever they were hunting. And the shaman would draw the hunters a map as to where to go to find the animals. And lo and behold, they were right consistently. I mean, I don't know how many times they weren't right, but the researchers that I've looked into and the shaman that have written about it and the writings that we have today show quite clear evidence that they were able to essentially remote view and then tell the hunters where to go and, and you know, what kind of an animal would greet them there. 
And they were able to do that quite consistently, which is quite interesting because really that's remote viewing. And then um, it seems to me that even though Buddha is often considered to be the first psychologist or psychiatrist, it, it seems the shaman were actually the first psychiatrists. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. You know, early in my training, when I first got into the Amazon and I was with both shaman and locals, and, you know, you have to f feed yourself out there off the land. They looked at me like, what do we do with this kid? You know, <laughs> I was in my early 20s and, and only knew how to go to a supermarket. And yeah. uh, so the very first thing they had me do was diet a plant that is supposed to help you both align with nature and be good for hunting. And through my first dieta experience in the Amazon, I gained those skills and had those awakenings. And after it, after the first two or three months, I felt so aligned with the forest and so akin to, to the, the, the elements of nature that, you know, we could go into vision, we could go into a ceremony and know exactly what we would see the next day or where different animals would be and go and meet them. And I used to take tourists out in canoes and be, you know, get a really clear understanding that three turns up river on the right, you would see woolly monkey and cer certainly three turns up right, I, there would be the woolly monkey or, you know, over on the left will be toucans and you could see them. That's a, a feat that is ubiquitous in shamanism around the world to be so connected with the animal spirits that they talk to you and they let you know where they are. Another feat that comes through in that sense is that when you do dieta in the Amazon, you're only allowed to eat two different kinds of river fish. And there's hundreds of species of, of river fish. And so you actually have to call to those fish in water that you cannot see into and actually like commune with them to come and be the fish or you don't eat. So you have uh -huh. to literally catch those and they have to sacrifice themselves or give themselves to your dieta to be able to eat. And you have to provide your own food during dieta. And that was uh, something that I had to do over my first five years of training. And so I, I relate, you know, incredibly to that. And in terms of the, the nature of psychology, I think the first people to start to understand the mind, the imagination, and the core codes of that were the shaman, and they mapped it. They fundamentally mapped the nature of those codes. They gave and ascribed meaning to the symbols that they could work with, which was typically the uh, archetypal meanings or the, the animalistic meanings. They would provide extraordinary meaning to that, like bear means this and wolf means that and crow means this. And they were able to draw out very clear maps of psychology, psychiatry, treatments for it, and a deep core understanding of how mythology forms that in the culture. Yeah, it's it seems to me just because I've had so many people come to see me from all over the world that have seen shaman. And I mean, of course, the name shaman means a lot of things now. So but what I found repeatedly is is that they would go see a shaman and whatever their ailment was, a lot of it's mental, emotional stuff. Sometimes it's health stuff, but they would keep getting the same thing over and over again. Just like you go to a medical doctor and you keep getting the same drug for a headache kind of thing. And so when I would look into it and do the system that I've developed and identify what the actual etiology or cause is, it would be different. And then when I oriented them towards healing that, they would get results. So it seems as though some of the shaman are actually have gotten into the habit of prescribing maybe a certain psychedelic or a certain ritual, but have not been able to penetrate to the actual cause, which could be a divorce or a death in the family or a self 
guilt or shame or something like that. So it seems to me there's a fairly diverse level of skill amongst people that are working as or, or, you know, kind of work within that field of shamanism. Yeah, the, the tribes, you know, had a very clear mechanism of how to be able to create shaman. And it was extensive training. The, the amount of training that the tribal shaman have is typically 10, 15, 20 years. And, and also under then the tutelage of, of another generation above you that are now the, the elders of the tribe and carrying that lineage forward. And it would be passed down and it wasn't considered a titled role or job. It's, it, it's a title of a, of a position within the society for life. And so you get brought into it very young and trained for an extremely long period of time. And then you practice for also an extremely long period of time. And then you sort of take over. And so you could be looking at 30, 40, 50 years of training to ultimately be the, the head shaman of a, a group. And what we've seen over the years is just a whittling away of that level of training to the point where it's a kind of self-prescribed role. And I even joke saying that anyone who grabs a smudge stick is now a shaman. Anyone who starts performing the rituals has, you know, grabs a shakapa or a drum and starts holding ceremonies. They've decided that they are taking on the role of shaman. There's no way to say this is just this is practice. I'm just I'm just kind of fooling around here or actually practicing the shamanism. And it goes so from like very first use of tool all the way to really the most proficient, most capable practitioners. And because of that, we see kind of now in the Western space, a lot of people calling themselves shamans that actually have very little training. And so we would think of them as somebody who's just, you know, very much like someone in early schooling or, um, you know, with, with taking on the title, but have yet to really develop the proficiencies to understand how to really utilize the medicines and, and drill deeper into the core problem like you, you described. And then the other aspect of that is the the idea that the psychedelics or the plant medicines are just going to fix you. And that idea, I think, is something that's very, very new to the shamanic space. And, um, you know, my understanding was that there's real treatments that somebody goes through and that the practice is typically of a much longer duration than people's typical ability to go get treatment is. So you see this repetitive use, repetitive treatment concept developing in the culture that I I don't think really is part of the shamanism per se, but more kind of a degradation of the practices to that level that's occurred over time. The, the reason I brought it up is because one, because I've seen it several times, but two, because I think it's, we're at this time in the world where like anything, be it finding a doctor, a dentist, a physical therapist, a chiropractor, or a shaman, it's really hard because even amongst the best Hot, you know, doctors from the same schools, chiropractors, whoever, the, the, the level of skill can range from almost non-existent to extremely good, whether it be a mechanic or a hairstylist or whatever. So I think that there's just such a, a diverse mix of people out there. Why I'm bringing it up is because a lot of people get fed up with the Western medical system and they travel all the way to the jungle and, and, or wherever thinking they're going to get something different, but they might get a, you know, a different drug per se, but oftentimes they're not getting somebody who has the depth of perception to get to the core issue. So I think that one has to be more conscious of 
interviewing whoever they're going to work with or asking better questions so they know that they're not just going to you know do a bunch of ayahuasca or herbs or whatever and just kind of go through the same and in fact i i, I had a conversation uh, there was a lady that has trained with me for years and i was teaching a, a workshop series in england and he had been in training for i don't know a couple of years at that time and i can't remember where he was at he was somewhere in the amazon as well and i brought this up and he said to me himself he said on the break he he said you know you're right he says i've watched people come with the same ailments repeatedly to the shaman I'm working with and they do the same things over and over again and nothing changes, but they're not changing the routine. And he was, of course, in my class, which I was going into a lot about how you get to the core issues of people. So he was finding it very helpful because it was adding to his understanding of shamanism to use these various approaches, which is why I built my system called Check Life Process Alchemy, which is really using the principles of alchemy to identify some of these root causes. But it, it's it's always interesting. I think I'm bringing these things up just because I want to help educate people to be more aware of. And you know, you're one of the most not only are you one of the most highly trained shaman I've been able to talk to, but you're rare because you can actually put things into the English language and in a context that people in the Western culture can understand. So that's very helpful, which is why I like talking to you about these things. Oh, I appreciate that tremendously. I mean, I think people out there need to heed this warning and understand that going and finding a shaman does not mean going and finding a doctor or a healer. And a shaman may just be a spiritual practitioner in today's world that can, you know, help you with some energy or help you understand a totem animal or maybe connect you into a visionary experience, but that the real healers are few and far between. And, you know, when I came to the Amazon, there were lots of people that called themselves shaman, and now there are even more. And many of them are charlatans, but um, the true healers, I was told by the, the the real top of top people in the space, they said is one in a hundred, and that's already having gotten to the Amazon. That's in their own culture describing that. Let alone what happened after there was Western interest, and everyone and their grandson came out of the woodwork to say they have some shamanic lineage. This is when no one was paying attention to it anymore, and it was just a form of healing that you could find along the river. There were also people who were negative in it. There were also people that were considered nefarious practitioners. And so that whittled down the number of like the good people are, are really capable of healing even more. And um, you know, ultimately, you might look at like three, five, six, seven years to become a proficient spirit practitioner shaman, but you were looking at five, 10, 15 years to become a proficient healer. And the healers had to learn how to diagnose. Now, they have no uh, other form of imaging. So they have to be able to see into the body, like remote viewing, but x-ray vision into the body. They have to be able to know that. They have to diagnose physical ailments from energetic ailments to spiritual ailments to consciousness-oriented ailments. They have to be able to diagnose whether it's uh, some kind of uh, you know pathology in the body, like a parasite or, or a bac bacteria or a virus from you know some other kind of potential ailment they have to be able to see that diagnose it correctly create the appropriate uh, treatment protocol know the medicines that could be used out of you know 100 plus medicinal plants then uh, make the right combination of them knowing which ones are counterindicated to each other very much like a pharmacist then they need to walk you through that treatment process itself which could last anywhere from a week to a uh, number of years and and 
they would have to have the you know visionary capacity and having done enough visionary ceremonies to know how to wield all of those different kinds of medicine. And then when it was a spiritual problem or a consciousness problem, in the case of spirit, they would have to be able to go into the 4D realms and the 5D realms and actually know how to navigate those with, with clear consciousness and in essence, recode someone's spirit. And if it was literally a problem in someone's consciousness, they would have to know how to go into even higher dimensional states and actually reorient that person's consciousness, which is like the core code to how they're cognating, the core code to how their mind is even forming in, in general. And so think about what kind of training somebody would need who, who's never been to school. This is typically someone who's illiterate in terms of the Western sense. And they have this innate and, and incredible capacity to learn these things. And then it's trained and honed over time. And so you take out of the population the number of people actually capable of that. And then those of those who are capable who actually made it through the training, and which is severe and people can even die in traditional training from how severe it is, the numbers just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's always been an ultimate problem for um Westerners and for the Western interest in this, because there are just very, very few of those people alive. And many of them live in very isolated places. And some of them are not even known in the West. Uh, so Hamilton, you're, you were just touching on something that goes right to my next question. And that's that in my studies of shamanism with a variety of the experts that write on it, it was really clear that shaman also engaged in the dark arts and were used in warfare to cast spells and engage in things that most of us today would be considering unethical or immoral. Can you share some thoughts regarding these aspects of shamanism and how much of that do you feel might still be going on today? Yeah, we have to go into prehistory to really look at that. And it's a pre-notion of Western morality and the origins of you know, kind of the idea of yin yang and light and dark uh, expressions in consciousness. And if we go even before that, I don't even think the shaman who were practicing would have even divided it into halves. I don't think they would have seen it as light and dark. I think they would have seen it as the actions that they were taking for the rationale behind those actions and um, probably creating some kind of rationale for themselves about it. But fundamentally, across all shamanic cultures, literally all of them, there's this notion of using it for uh, the enhancement of life, the benefit of people, the positive expressions, the health of people. And then there's also the notion of kind of a more nefarious state where it's being used to harm, create illness, create advantage, alter people's perceptions for various purposes or reasons, have greater control or greater power etc. And when I came to the Amazon 20 years ago, those practices were very real and alive. There were both light practices and dark practices. That, that was also common across Southeast Asia, across Africa, across Eurasia, where these cultures are, are very strong still in terms of the awareness that I met of, of practitioners around the world, also up into Canada and the Northern Territories, down through the rest of South America, uh, etc. So it was ubiquitous, clear, that it's a still a predominant form of practice in the world. And I think as there's you know greater encroachment, Western pressures on people, there's a, a tremendous need for, um, for people to, to look to all different kinds of, of arts to support them, including the dark arts, 
And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the pressures that people are under. But I, I, you know, to answer your question, it's prevalent and something that needs people need to be aware of and steer clear of because that fundamentally is not life affirming. It's not healing. It's not in the benefit of others. Yet it is real. Yeah. So my next question is, if shaman, magicians and sorcerers can access and manipulate consciousness for either good or evil with no or greater or less limitation in their objective, what do you feel that tells us about the authentic authentic nature of both consciousness and or God? Yeah, that's an incredible question. I think if we go to the essence of consciousness and we go to the essence of God, we see that they are both of universal expressions. And that as you drill down on those expressions, you categorize the nature of those expressions in the form of both light and dark. But in the nature of the universal expression, it's kind of represented under the umbrella of all or anything that's actually currently manifesting. And that, you know, God is ultimately responsible for the total manifestation of all. And consciousness is a field that God uses through which to create, and including now, not created in the past and now some, you know, rolling kind of play of existence, but rather this continuous creating that is the universe. And it shines a lot of understanding on the the prevalence of these different kinds of forces that are seen here of earth, also of humans within society in a a greater context. And um, I think because shamanic cultures were represented compared to Western cultures as this great other, that it, it's hard to draw parallels to the notion of darkness. But when I look at you know Western cultures, I, I ultimately studied in an anthropological way that there is tr- perfect parallels that can be seen in the Western cultures to represent magic, to represent distortion, to represent uh, real evil practices that are done for different kinds of purposes of power and monetary gain, and that that's fundamentally also real. I've seen it in many different forms. I teach this in our retreats that, you know, a lot of the mass advertising we're going to see is a fundamental form of magic or a fundamental form of manipulation of information. And that manipulation is, is akin to pure shamanic practices. And we also see manipulation of fact into not only fiction for the sake of entertainment, but actual fiction for the the sake of propaganda and brainwashing that is also incredibly detrimental and would be akin and identical to what we're calling these dark arts practices. And so I was actually shocked when I learned of these practices in traditional cultures to ultimately find out that the West had taken them ultimately from traditional cultures, learned their ways and institutionalized them on a global level to the point that people don't even know it anymore. And then and then are shocked to find out that there are these practices when they've actually been a victim of the practices since they were first alive. <laughs> Surprisingly. Yeah, uh, it's a, <laughs> incredible, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it goes right, you know, it's heavy in religion, it's heavy in television and the education system and it's getting worse which is kind of a one of my concerns hi everybody i am so excited to tell you about wild pastures amazing meat delivery service they have beef chicken pork and wild caught fish my family and i have been enjoying their meat for quite some time now And I just couldn't wait to tell you about it any longer. We had an amazing barbecue this weekend, and I'm still high off the meat. 
and they use a whole network of regenerative farms, which means that you're getting a different ecosystem from each farm, which means a different nutritional profile, which means nutritional diversity, which means health and vitality, which is exactly what we need right now in the world for ourselves and our families so we can all make a difference in the world. And Matt Smith's going to tell us more about this amazing company, Wild Pastures, about their offering and how you can get it. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much, Paul. And I'm excited to tell your listeners what they can get today and how we can help them out. So, you know, as you know, pastured meats are crazy expensive. And so our goal with Wild Pastures is to tap into this network of regenerative farmers and to finally create the solution of where we can get the highest quality meats delivered straight to your door for the most affordable prices around. And so we're on average seeing that we are 40% cheaper than any other delivery option out there. And that our customers have reportedly saved, on average, $1,000 on their grocery bill from meat alone. And so Wild Pastures is a regenerative meat delivery service that is solving this problem. And you can get 100% grass-fed and finished, as well as pasture-raised pork and poultry and wild-caught seafood from Alaska delivered straight to your door. So it's far more convenient. It's far more environmentally friendly because we're using regenerative farms entirely. We don't use feedlots ever. So the, the nutrition profiles are way better. You can definitely taste the difference. I know we were talking about this on our uh, just before we hopped on. You having a Father's Day barbecue and, and how incredible the pasture-raised chicken and beef short ribs were. And you can really taste the difference, right? I'm and still so, high. <laughs> and so our goal is to remove the roadblock from people's minds that if they want to eat healthy, it's too expensive. And so that's where Wild Pastures comes in is we are delivering with our own fleets of trucks whenever possible. We haven't raised our meat prices in over three years at this point. And we're really just creating convenience for the consumer and kind of being the high tide that rises all ships. If we can opt more people into a system like this, the cost stays down for everybody. And so there is a myriad of benefits that go into that. And so today, if your listeners want to try Wild Pastures and taste the difference and experience what it's like, go to wildpastures.com forward slash Paul Check or click the link in the show notes and save 20% off for life, plus get free shipping for life plus get $15 off your first box. That's a mind-blowing deal. I can't even <laughs> imagine. I mean, I've never heard of an offer like that. And, you know, most people will hear an offer like that and think, this can't be that good. But I'm telling you, it's not, it's not only that good, it's really good. Or I would not be sharing this on my podcast. I think everybody needs to get a hold of Wild Pastures for their family, for their vitality, for their longevity, and for the future of this planet. So thank you guys very much. So Matt, Matt, just repeat the website again. Sure. Just go to wildpastures.com forward slash Paul check or visit the link in the show notes and get 20% off for life plus free shipping for life plus $15 off your first box so you can try it. You'll be glad you did. You, you know, with all the issues that are going on in the world, whatever label you want to put on it. One of the things that I've seen, and, 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 and this is not a recent thing, it's just the, the issues of the world lately have made it more obvious, and that is that people seem to be, their minds seem to be very easily programmed, very easily hijacked, and they very often come to very harsh, strong opinions about things that they really don't have any real knowledge on or haven't taken the time to research. And so we have a combination of, you know, Watiko mind virus issues. We've got traumatized people. We've got a lot of people that are 
roped in on medical drugs that they're taking for a wide variety of things. But the question I'm leading to here is, what's your view as a shaman as, as why it's so easy to misled, mislead people? I, I saw a comment from Greg Reese on, in one of his Reese reports. He says, paraphrasing, it's very easy to trick people, but very hard to convince them that they've been tricked. And it's kind of like when a hypnotist puts people under a spell and can easily make them do very silly things on stage. And then once they come out of the spell and their friends tell them about what they did, they have a hard time even believing it and often will deny that, you know, they were doing it. So I'm just curious from your perspective, <laughs> one, I think you probably agree that there's a lot of people that are walking around in a trance state that is not of their own induction. And two, it's causing problems at pretty much all levels of society. Three, the, the, the sorcerers behind a lot of these trances have some nefarious motives and they have been for a long time. So if, if you were put in charge of helping people regain some, shall we say, sanity and, and conscious awareness, Let's say the whole world was under a, a, a spell by a sorcerer. What, what would you suggest that people do to break the spell so they can be re reconnected with reality and make intelligent decisions? Yeah, and I think what you're describing is fact. And it's uh, saddening in a way that this is what we're facing as a collective. And um, when we break it down and we study it, ultimately a mind spell comes in the form of a false ideology. And so if you ask why it's so easy, the reason why it's so easy is because we've been presented these false ideologies since we were little, since we were in utero. And the false ideologies came in pretty much every form. And to get really to the nitty gritty of the point, the false ideology is perpetuated in language on either side of the verb is. And is functions as an equal sign. In, in word math. And so if something is described as being something else with an is, that has to mean fact. And, and it, you know, a, a huge soft drink company had a billboard outside our, our offices and it said, you know, this soft drink is for everybody. And you would go downtown and you would see mothers with baby bottles filled with the soft drink putting it in, in babies' mouths, you know, literally moving them from breastfeeding to this soft drink because right there is the billboard saying, this is for everybody. And that's a, the, a great example because we know that that's a fundamental lie. That soft drink definitely is not for everybody, period. There's just no way it could be for everybody. So if you perpetuate this linguistic movement and this, this tweaking and manipulation around this is concept, you can just start to perpetuate these lies any way you want and people will start to believe them. And then the, the other part of it is a manipulation of the trance itself. It's first induced the trance. And the way I recognize the induction of the trance, which I um, found very fascinating, was early, early childhood, where you see first the, the trance of separation created, where uh, you know babies are moved typically in different movements, all different axes you know, by adults, upside down, sideways, this way, that way, they're being moved in all of these different axes, and they're being described archetypes. 
and they're being told the archetypes like mother, father, who they are, who the others are, and it's all separation code. And so you take this idea of separation code and then you start to you know, introduce these very early basic shapes, which starts to form the nature of the mind like squares, rectangles, triangles, circles, et cetera. And then you start to put in them this code that is fundamentally flawed and it's, uh, it's fundamentally distorted and manipulated. And I'm not saying parents are doing this in any kind of nefarious way. I'm just saying it's been propagated. Pretty soon the, the children have taken on the trance and that the trance has been propagated and it's uh, societally supported. And in doing so, now as you grow into that over the years as an adult, you uh, are easily manipulated under the exact same spell. And sadly, as I deconstructed this to try to understand it, because so many people were coming to me to heal this and they didn't understand what was going on, I actually found out that insidiously it's at the, uh, it's, it's at the most fundamental basic of our understandings. And so we're, we're taught a framework through which to understand, like, what is the earth? What is the solar system? What is the universe? What is spirit? What is God? What is the imagination? What is the mind? And all of that carries the exact same spell within it. And it has, uh, you know, ultimately become a ubiquitous situation for the planet. And we're all under the weight of it together now. And, and one of the problems, too, is... I think people are so disconnected from the elements, earth, water, fire, air, and even in some models, ether or space. And therefore, they're living in this really ideological jungle instead of a real earth-based relationship. You see, I had the benefit of being raised on a farm. So you come face to face with key realities. If you don't water the animals, they'll die. If you don't feed them, they'll die. If you don't take care of them, they'll die. If you don't water plants and have a knowledge of the soil and take care of the plants, they'll die, which means for the farmer, you're going to starve to death. You won't be able to pay your bills. Your family can't eat. And so as a child grounded in these observable realities that I had to engage on a daily basis, I think having looked at and worked with thousands of people that were raised in cities and bottle fed and watching television all their life. My parents wouldn't let us have a television until I was 16. And that's when I moved out of the house and our television was a black and white thing. And we had no cable and we had aerials and you, the only two channels you could get was BBC news and other, some other Canadian channel that faded in and out and rarely had anything worth watching on them. So I had almost no exposure to television the first 16 years of my life. In fact, my friends used to crack up at me because I used to think the commercials were so cool and they would get up and walk away, but I didn't want to leave because I thought the commercials were so cool. But you know, now I know how well engineered the commercials were to capture your mind. But the point I'm making is I think one of the fundamental problems that's behind a lot of this is that people have been so uprooted from the elemental environment where there is really only the reality of the flow, the heartbeat, the pulse, the metabolism, digestion, assimilation, and elimination that is inherent in all natural processes, which is really what Chinese medicine is totally based on. So I think people not having a grounding in the way the elements work together. For example, life force the word qi means steam in Chinese. And in order to make steam, you have to have fire. 
You have to have earth, a pot to hold the water in. You got to have water and you have to have atmosphere. And no human being can be healthy if they, ha- if they have an imbalance in those elements. In fact, all ailments can be broken down to a, some imbalance of earth, water, fire, air, and then the space within them, which could be mental space, emotional space, etc., dream space. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are in that regard. Yeah, the, the ideological jungle is real. The ideological dissociation, which uh, looks like ideological separation, is real. And you have people that basically have their basic needs taken care of. They're living inside, you know, fundamentally boxes, uh, you know, engineered environments, no longer really representing nature, although it's made of nature, like, you know, crushing rock and sand and making concrete but ultimately to build buildings and these glass and steel buildings etc but completely isolated uh, looks much more like a science experiment than it does looks like you know living kind of in and with the earth and pretty soon you you have a matrix of ideologies that have really nothing to do with the elements that you're described they're they're based on the fact that those elements that you described are fundamental to the universe and fundamental to earth um, but they allow for this abstraction layer to be created, which is fundamentally mind. And so you see people now living entirely in the matrix of the mind, debating the mind and debating the categories that they use within the mind to describe uh, their understandings of themselves and their roles within life and the greater context of life around them. And it's sadly fraught with uh, you know, all sorts of fundamental discrepancies. And so you get this great polarization within society, but ultimately of people that have lost the connection, the core connection to the nature of these fundamental uh, principles and that those fundamental principles are actually very orienting, grounding, healing, and supportive balancing of an individual. And so we see a kind of psychological disease start to form and also a collective trance start to form that's ideological in matrix not nature and matrix. And, um, you know, it leads to a certain kind of, of psychological uh, disorder. And we see, you know, most people, sadly, in one form or another falling into that category. And so I think it's a, you know, you have a very clear observation there that I'm in agreement with. And one of the things that the shamanic practices are great at is typically bringing somebody back into a core connection with those, you know, fundamental elements. And that as somebody comes into connection with them, there's a natural kind of orienting, balancing, and healing that takes place that uh, lets them see through some of that delusion and illusion that they were operating within. And there's a kind of natural awakening that takes place. Yeah. The other issue that is part of what you've just described is that because we are trapped in a mental reality that functions with or without connection to the physiosphere and the biosphere, the ideology that is injected into people through all the means we're talking about actually crosses right over into their perception of what food is and what good food is. And for example, I'll give you an example of something that irritated me to no end. I'll give you two examples. You know, I've worked for many Olympic committees and top sports teams and you know, I reached the top of my profession a long time ago. And I was once, they, they, 
I lectured for years in Australia and New Zealand. They were very big on my teachings when the Americans were slow to catch on. So I spent several years, probably about five years, mostly in Australia and New Zealand. And um, they had just built a new Olympic training center in Auckland, New Zealand. And so once they opened it so that the public could come train, they had a beautiful gym. So I would I started going there whenever I could to get my workouts in because I had Olympic platforms and the things I needed to train the way I train. And Penny texted me one day and said, I'll meet you in the cafe. So I walked to the cafe and we sat there and, and had an espresso or something. And there was a bunch of pamphlets on the ta- on every table and the Olympic Center there was sponsored by Nestle. So I I was just curious what, what these pamphlets were. So I pulled it out and it was produced by Nestle. And the, the pamphlet begins by saying, did you know that sugar is an important part of a balanced diet for every athlete? And I showed that to Penny. I said, oh, look at this. They're not referring to complex carbohydrates. Of course, it's Nestle. They're referring to processed sugar. And I said to Penny, I've been in this business a hell of a long time. I haven't met a single athlete yet, nor I've even met a nutritionist that knows what a balanced diet is or how to go about figuring out where the imbalances are and how to produce a balanced diet. I said, so imagine all the parents sitting here with their kids reading this, believing that because it's in the Olympic Training Center, which is the most elite training organization available probably for the public access, the people are actually going to believe this shit. So the point I'm making is, is that this infection of the mind crosses over to infect our concepts of the core principles of the elements and even what good water is. You know, for example, I've seen many Dasani commercials that say seven times filtered. Well, most people think that means it's better water, but they don't realize water has to have organisms in it. Water has to have a a unique chemistry to it. It has a unique natural energy to it. And most of the water they're filtering is tap water. And by the time you filter every single thing out of it, you don't have living water anymore. You've got dead water. So these are points I'm making to show how this psychological manipulation actually disrupts the ability of every individual that gets caught in that trap to not only recognize what good food is and good water is and good basic living practices are, but these people show up in my lectures and argue with me like I'm crazy and they're till they're blue in the face to defend their disease. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Fundamentally, I, yes. It's, first of all, fascinating because the best water is never needed to be filtered directly from the earth. Right. And yeah, like why would it be contaminated to start with? And so I think that fundamentally we we're getting at a question of where do you start the nature of your argument to create your rationale? And so if you're living in a world of polluted water and you have to filter the water to have clean water, that's, you know, in essence being presented as better, but better is not needing to filter water because the environment you live in is pristine and clean and you can just drink the water. Um, you know, the other part is, well, where does it packaged in? Is it packaged in plastics? So now your water is seven times filtered, now contaminated with microplastics and plastic molecules. And then, you know, has those plastics been 
heat heated over the time since they left the factory? Like what's the supply chain associated with actually delivering that there? And I, I just think that people, you know, live in, in a fantasy reality of what life even really is. And I think, you know, I go back to the, the nature of animal. I go back to the mammal, the actual biology of us. And I go and I, I, I think, you know, we get presented with the archetype in our mind that we're taught to defend when we forget the biology of our cells. We forget the mitochondria. We forget the microorganisms. We forget the billions of intestinal bacteria that are also us as we're having this discussion. The, the, the trillions and trillions of microorganisms that we are, not that are somehow isolated from me. I would not be able to cognate and have this conversation without them. And uh, the nature of health and the nature of digestion, the nature of the enzymes and how we evolved uh, to even be humans, how there was over a billion years of life of continuous evolution to get to the very first human and how there have been another uh, million plus years of life to get to us. And I think people have fundamentally forgotten this. Just it's, it's part of the mind disease to not see the collective evolutionary supply chain and what humans have ultimately done to the earth to be able to create the current version of society that, you know, in which we're describing. And when it comes to foods, um, you know, there's this belief that what we're eating that are called foods for humans is food and the rest of everything else isn't. When the food that we're describing is, is mostly a, a form of process and chemistry. So it's actually like a science experiment. It's not even quote unquote food. And the natural foods that we're provided are the ones that are good for shipping. So they're not even the ones that are good from being found in your natural environment that would give you a wide variety of uh, food ingredients, plus all of the different kinds of microorganisms that you're describing that create living food and living water and living sustenance. And so I, I think we, you know, many years ago turned away from life, literally got scared of the diversity, got scared of the speed of evolution, the mutation, the transformation, the what we call illness and disease. And we tried to control it. And in doing so, we've abstracted it. We've then, you know, instilled into that uh, kind of social programming around social values uh, and economic values, uh, cheaper, faster, better does not relate to food and health. So you bring into it the idea of cheaper, faster, better. You can't get cheaper, faster, better water. You can't get cheaper, faster, better food. You can get cheaper food. It's not better. You can get faster food. It's not better. And so uh, fundamentally, we've, we've, you know, created a, 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 I don't know, a disease state that we've normalized and then we're taught to defend it, you know, which is why people want to argue with you about that, which I think is sadly the silliest part of us because we're defending the parts of us that are actually being hurt the most by the systems that we live in. And, you know, I think it's incredibly important to wake up to this and start making a decision for yourself about how you're going to live, how you're going to survive. And to do that is also the, the notion of regaining some free will and choice over uh, what you consume and taking your own personal power back as a fundamental form of consumer. We consume air, we consume water, we consume foods, we consume medicines all the time and uh, regaining some choice about that specifically because of everything we've discussed. Yeah, you know, I, I tell people regularly, look, you know, because I get people, as you can imagine, coming with cancer and all sorts of complex diseases and everybody's 
always asking me, what should I take? What should I take? And I say, you're asking the wrong question. The first question you should be asking is, what should I take away? You know, because so many people are, I mean, I've had people on 32 prescribed medical drugs at the same time, prescribed by six different doctors. Uh, one lady was literally starting to die. She was going blind. She had lost her hearing. And by the time she got to me, she was very, very sick. And I evaluated all these drugs. I looked them all up in my uh, drug check softwares and, and drug books in my library. Six of the combinations were listed as experimental, will kill you. Not one of the doctors had ever talked to any of the other doctors. And what they didn't realize is she was a criminal lawyer. And once I put all these drug reports in front of her and showed her these combinations, trust me, she was very pissed off. She, she said, I'm going to be having some conversations with these doctors because I was able to show her through the drug reports why she'd lost her vision, why she'd lost her hearing, why she'd gained about 50 pounds and was now obese, why she had chronic gas and constipation and every other symptom that she had. And so it's, it's a really dangerous situation. Point being is when people ask me, what should I take? I say, let's focus on what you should take away. And then I try to just orient them to, you know, a whole food natural diet, which usually has a medicinal power that's quite shocking to people once they actually switch to real organic food and I show them how to use a variety of techniques to identify what it is their body wants from meal to meal and they start drinking high quality water and, and you know, just living basic principles, getting to bed on time. You know, it, what, what most people think of as miracles begin to happen. And I think if people realized how much money is being spent just by taking advice from people with fancy degrees. But as I say to my patients, don't go to health, un, unhealthy doctors for health advice. Uh, I, I metaphorically say it's kind of a true metaphor. I say if, if you're going to go to a health teacher or a, anybody that's a personal trainer or a strength coach or educator, they should be able to teach you in their underwear because you should be able to see the results of their own philosophy right in front of them. And I said, you know, how many people in the medical profession wouldn't come to work if they had to go to work tomorrow in their underwear? Well, most of them. And so I, I think, you know, we need, we need to start putting some common sense to all this. The other thing that I've always found fascinating, and I researched this a few years ago because it, I had a hunch. I looked up all sorts of authors that were writing top health and diet books and looked at the pictures on the books that were recently published. And then I scanned the internet looking for pictures of other pictures of them. And almost every single book by an author had a picture of them that was usually 10 to 20 years old that made them look a lot healthier than they were when I found actual pictures of these people. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, look, th th like this is before even photo manipulation on, on uh, social media. So many people are running this kind of illusion and selling their health ideas as good for everybody. I just think it's my point really that I'm driving at is people need to really actually slow down a little bit and have some common sense and start asking, what should I take away? And am I eating real food and drinking real water? Because you could be running to doctors and therapists for the rest of your life and psychiatrists and psychologists when you haven't even 
done the most important thing. And when you look at the research on the microbiome and how just the bacteria in our gut affects our psychology, the production of hormones, the balance of hormones. And as you were mentioning earlier, you know, you're sitting there making intellectual thought processes and decisions that you couldn't do without microorganisms. But science shows us that 90% of what we call the cells of our body are actually not our cells. They're bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasitic organisms. And the other thing is we're 99.9% water based on molecular count. And that water will absorb almost any frequency into it, whether it be consciousness, psychic frequencies, to electromagnetic pollution, to the frequencies of the earth. So if people aren't protecting themselves from electromagnetic pollution and drinking clean water, I mean, every animal you eat that was raised on a commercial farm is just laden, not only with the toxins in that environment, but with the emotions and the fear of that animal. And so one of the things I tell people all the time is the first thing you need to do to decide whether or not you're eating too much meat is go stand and witness a slaughter. So you can actually really experience the death of the animal and see how real that is and realize that a life is being sacrificed for you. And I found that anybody that does that has a much more innate sense of limiting how much meat they eat instead of just consuming meat, meat, meat like crazy, which is just the opposite of vegetarianism. It's, it's the same disease, but the pendulum just swung the other way. Hi, everybody. Have you ever wondered why your blood is red? It's because it's full of oxygen and life force. It's what keeps you going. But what if I could tell you about something else that's red that will add more life force and keep you going? And if you start with a red juice before you have coffee or tea and wait a few minutes, you might find that you either don't need the coffee or the tea or you need less of it. But this time, instead of getting coffee and tea, you got a lot of nutrition and a lot of great stuff for stress management and detoxification. And it's so important. I got Drew Canole. It took me two years to get him to come <laughs> hang out with me and talk about this. I said, Drew, tell me more about your red juice. And he is right here to tell us what is on with your red juice. My kids love it. Everybody I know loves it. Well, I love that we have it for kids. Because yes. when I was a kid, there was this big red dude that would burst through a brick wall and he was like, oh yeah. And he would feed me a glass of 50 grams of sugar, <laughs> giving most people diabetes, yeah. ADHD, yeah. addiction. Obesity. Obesity, all the things, right? Mm. So when we created Red, it was, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. If we could create something that could create lasting stamina, lasting energy. And then we started to look at our ancient ancestors. Mm -hmm. We talk about the Vikings, mm -hmm. the people that were rowing across the oceans, oceans. for days <laughs> yeah. to go to war. Yeah. What were they taking? Well, they were taking rhodiola. Yeah. Rhodiola is in our red juice. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, so out of all the mushrooms, yeah. what's one of the best medicinal mushrooms that can give us long lasting energy? Mm. We found cordyceps. Cordyceps mm. are absolutely amazing. Yes. Not just any cordyceps or rhodiola, glyphosate residue free and organic. Mm -hmm. And how can we make it taste better 
Then the oh yeah, you yeah. know how do we make it taste better than that without the sugar? Yeah, we added a little monk fruit. Monk fruit's amazing. Yep, and we found the best berries on the planet. Mm. Berries in in high amounts, which we have in the red juice, actually help increase stem cell creation in your body. Mm. What's better than that for our little ones and for us? Yes, and so many people are just lethargic; they're lacking energy. Yes, what could we do for that? Red juice in the afternoon, two p.m. rolls around. Instead of a nap, instead of the coffee. Drink the red juice. You're going to feel so much better. Well, if you need the nap, take the nap if you can, but then take the red juice to kick you back into gear. Exactly. I love naps and I love coffee. I I do too, but I love to make sure I got the nutrition in me first. You know, the other thing is berries are a natural stimulant to the adrenal glands. So Mm. if people would do a little red juice before they do coffee and tea, they would pick themselves up naturally, except this time they're bringing in nutrition. And unfortunately, coffee blocks almost every vitamin and mineral you can put in your mouth. So- Hey, there you have it, right from the man himself. So if you're ready to get filled with life force energy and vitality, go to Organifi.com forward slash check 20. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash C-H-E-K two zero. And don't forget to use the promo code CHECK20 to get 20% off Organifi Red Juice and all Organifi products. That's Organifi.com forward slash check 20 and the discount code is check 20. Now, we've talked about shamanism and what it means to be a shaman, but to sort of set the stage for the rest of our conversation, I, I always like to clarify words so that people don't jump to their own conclusions about what we're saying. So if you could share from your perspective as a shaman, if you use the word consciousness, what are you really talking about? Consciousness for me is a field that is innate to the universe through which all perception, all cognition, and all sense takes place. And if you're of the field of consciousness, it can allow you self-awareness. It can allow you the ability to, to know your own thinking and ultimately you know, express language. But fundamentally, everything that uh, is of some kind of perception has this uh, link into that field of consciousness. So consciousness is a field that allows for perception. Yeah. there's As you are surely probably aware, there's many definitions of consciousness. In my new book series, I probably share at least six. But Itzhak Bentov, who I don't know if you're, are you familiar with Itzhak Bentov's work? Mm, I've heard of it, yeah. He wrote the book Stalking the Wild Pendulum and a few others, but uh, he describes consciousness as the total flow of information in any system. So from a universal perspective, consciousness would be the total flow of information. And um, there's a variety of other things. Some, some, for example, say that to be conscious means that you're aware that you're aware. So People may not really understand that, but for example, I'm aware that I'm talking to you right now, but I'm also aware that I'm aware that I'm talking to you. In other words, there's something sitting behind just the awareness of my words or the presence of you on my my video screen that's witnessing it all, which really would what I would be considered as consciousness itself. So I distinguish big C, which is God consciousness from little c, which is the awareness of phenomena. So the sound of my voice would be phenomena, but big c, source consciousness, would be what's behind it all. 
Uh, Edward Edinger, a famous union analyst and psychiatrist, says consciousness is a psychic substance produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. And I think there's a lot of reality to that because consciousness is tangible, right? We, we know when we're somebody with someone that has a high level of consciousness that you can <clears throat> feel it in them and around them. <clears throat> and consciousness cannot be created without positives and negatives because we would have no way to make meaning without it. So I think Edinger has a very good definition there. <clears throat> How do you define the unconscious? I debate the unconscious. I would say that it's the, the unconscious exists in that which is not yet awakened. And so it's the deep undercurrent within us. But once awakened, I don't think there is an unconscious. I think there's an awareness of what was unconscious. And unconsciousness is, is fundamentally not yet awakened. And so, and I don't think all humans are awakened. I don't think it's about human to be awake. I think of it as a continuum that once the universe makes this very interesting mutation or evolution, which is when you come into existence, but before you, the universe exists and you're not yet d divisible within the universe. And then all of a sudden you are that when that happens, you start a, a journey of universal awakening. And so before the awakening, unconscious, and then after the awakening, conscious of the unconsciousness. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there's lots of definitions of the unconscious, and a lot of people debate it and, and things like that, but I, I work with it all the time. It's part of my daily spiritual practice to engage the unconscious. So really, when I'm speaking of the unconscious, I'm speaking of everything that's below the ego's awareness, which mm -hmm. is a vast sea of information yeah, fair enough agreed under that definition I, yes <laughs> yeah yeah but, but i think yeah more think, than more than the other <laughs> oh well far more yeah. yeah um and i think too that really one of the most important aspects of spiritual development is bringing as much of the unconscious into conscious awareness as one element of it but also developing a relationship with the unconscious which really makes up a huge aspect of one's soul and, and my experience and my model and my investigation is that, you know, it takes, it usually takes people to have enough pain and challenges in their life to realize their ego is not a reliable leader and that there's something deeper in them that has been trying to get their attention for a long time. And oftentimes when I teach people how to connect to their soul and, and, and they experience their soul, I say, now, how many of you have felt those feelings before? And almost every hand in the class goes up. And I say, how many of you have felt those feelings telling you not to do what you were about to do, but you ignored them? And almost every hand in the class goes up. So I say, how many of you are now ready to realize that there is a lot more intelligence inside of you that's capable of telling you the truth when you're not used to listening and are you ready to listen to it now? And so in alchemy, they have a beautiful way of expressing this. They show a picture of a horse. And by the way, the horse is a symbol of freedom. And on the horse, there's two riders, which is the same body. So it would might show two, two Hamiltons or two Pauls, but one of them's leaning to the right and the other one's leaning to the left and the horse has this look of confusion on his face. So one represents the ego and the other one represents the soul or the unconscious. And so when the, when the work of 
alchemy comes to the point where there's the sacred marriage of the male and the female or the conscious and the unconscious, there's only one rider on the horse and the horse isn't confused anymore. And I think that's such a beautiful reality right there. And I actually had my artist recreate uh, that image or images so I could share people why I think alchemy is such an important concept. Agreed, agreed. The, uh, the unconscious under your definition is vast. And part of what I call the universe, sort of the <laughs> yes, rest of is. the universe. So there's yes. like what ego understands and the lens through which we see in the mind and then the rest of the universe. And it's, it's opening up to that. And I, I appreciate that notion of, of that definition of the unconscious as saying, hey, you might want to look there. There's, there's more going on. <laughs> now, a lot of people don't distinguish between unconscious and subconscious. For those listening, there's a very good book I highly recommend people read. It's called Your Body is Your Subconscious Mind by Candace Pert. Very, very good book. I describe the subconscious as the wisdom of the cells of the human body. So the unconscious is all the information your ego is not aware of, but the subconscious is the wisdom of the cells that digests, metabolizes, assimilates, eliminates, handles 30 billion billion biochemical reactions a second, and is a vast, vast warehouse of knowledge as well. Um, so I'm just curious if you have your own definition of subconscious or do you make any distinction there? I do. I think that I like your definition of the subconscious and I just tie to it the, you know, the deep undercurrents that of all of that uh, biological chemistry and alchemy that's taking place, how that starts to come into the origins of the uh, impetus of thought, the origins of the impetus of, of action and, and um, craving like you know, what would drive you in your deepest core psychology to take a breath? What would drive you to find a glass of water? What would drive you to pick a piece of fruit? What is the the nature of that urge within you? Um, so yeah, I, I do think of the subconscious as very important and something that we dive into a lot in the plant medicine space. Yeah, I think too, the subconscious is really the home of our instincts and people are dangerously disconnected from their exactly. instincts because they're dangerously connected with their bodies. Exactly. And I, I think when you look at the issues of what's going on in the world today, most people's reaction or that have any agency in them would be, okay, what can I do in the world? You know, should I sign this petition? Should I go uh, pick it or, you know, whatever I do, start a lawsuit? But the the reality of it is, is that if you first regain your instincts and take care of your body, then you start getting more in touch with reality. But one of the things that happens is your mind starts to clear up. You start sensing things more accurately and you also have enough life force in you to actually do something. But today, most people have so little vitality, they can barely keep their bodies alive. So when it comes to dealing with the issues of the world, there's no resources there. And I think that's one of the real threats that we face as we approach and, and, and as we're in such an environmental catastrophe. But, you know, we, we could easily be on the edge of something very serious, like the extinguishing of the bees and the insects, which could cause food shortages worldwide. So in order to have agency to get involved, whether it be protecting the soil or the trees or the earth or trying to 
raise public awareness so that these corporations don't keep destroying our very survivability, you have to have enough connection to your instincts to start actually listening to them. And that means instead of drinking more coffee at night, it means going to bed. It means instead of taking more drugs, it means paying attention to what you're putting in your mouth and what it's doing to your body and your mind and your emotions. So my only point is that I think because we're so disconnected from these levels of ourself, most people don't know where to begin balancing or healing themselves. And as we said earlier, instead of it being common sense, I need to sleep more, I need to move my body more or whatever, it's what drug do I need to take? And so you just get further and further down the rabbit hole. And the problem is, is when people use drugs and other types of manipulation like that, they actually don't realize that though they have less symptoms, they're pushing the disease deeper and deeper into the system where it ultimately proliferates. And I can't tell you how many people I've met over my career that came to me with tears in their eyes and said, you know, Paul, I was healthy. I was doing everything, living my life. I went in for a routine medical check and the doctor told me I had stage three or stage four cancer. You know, so it's like all of a sudden, boom. And I, I have to explain to them, look, you know, it takes about 10 years to grow that degree of cancer in your body. It means that you've been out of balance for a very, very long time. So I think it's very important for people to start. And, you know, why I'm bringing this up in a topic of shamanism is because really shamanism gets right down to an understanding of the natural principles of life and the flows of energy and nature. And it goes beyond the basics to what are the intelligences or the divas or the deities or the spirits that are informing nature. And I think part of the problem is we have such a dangerously materialistic conception of life that when guys like you and I talk about the spirits of a tree or a plant or a, a flower or water, we're looked at like we're psychopaths. But when you really understand <laughs> What's going on, you know, you realize that you not only need to reconnect to the elements, but you also can gain a lot of benefit by learning to feel the intelligences in the elements because they're also guiding you. That's what your body's made of. That's what the subconscious mind is being informed by. A simple, a simple analogy is, you know, if you look at an acorn, you can cut it open and cut, cut it into the smallest pieces you can possibly get and you won't find an oak tree in it. So in there is a guiding intelligence. Well, that's the spirit of the oak tree. And exactly. the DNA of the oak tree is an antenna system that taps into the field of intelligence or the morphic field in which the oak tree spirit lives. So we, 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 we become so divorced from deep truth for superficial profitable truths that the paradox is, is the the people that were the medicine men and shaman of yesterday would be considered quacks today, and they are. And so, you know, I've been labeled as being a quack. I was put on the quack watch in 2008, which was quite a funny day in my life to realize I'd made the quack watch. And But the, the funny thing is, is that there was a point that I had 36 medical doctors and their family members seeing me as patients, almost my entire schedule for many years was doctors, their wives, nurses, and family members. And the funny thing was, is that all had 
problems that nobody else could figure out, which is why they came to me. And I had to introduce them to these concepts, which they thought I was crazy, but couldn't deny the fact that the reason they got sent to me was I got results with people. And I had to reintroduce them to the very things that they were taught was a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fundamentally true. Like, uh, you know, we've divorced ourselves from spirit, but it doesn't mean that spirit is divorced from us. We've right. divorced ourselves yes. from God, but it doesn't mean God is divorced from us. We've divorced ourselves from what we don't understand yet or don't know, but it doesn't mean that those things are divorced from us. And so I, I used to say this all the time about spirit. I say people are using spirit to debate the validity or the lack of validity of spirit. So that's spirit. <laughs> so like they're, they've taken spirit. They use their brain. They grab spirit. And now they're using spirit to debate how spirit doesn't exist. And the atheist <laughs> is using God to debate how God doesn't exist. And I said that the fact that the debate exists at all is the proof of the fact that these forces exist within, within nature and that science is fundamentally studying this. But it has divorced itself from it. And then it drew its lines of where it starts its argument. So it starts its argument within a, a boundary of what is already known. And what I, I love about this idea of singularity and where we're headed is that ultimately all of these things that have been pushed aside from the current bubble of society that would then you know label these concepts as outside the box or quackery or whatever ultimately gets the, the next level of awakening which is that 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 those forces are how these studies even existed at all, how they came into being, and that ultimately is what's coming next. <laughs> and here's the sad part. A lot of these people that don't believe in spirits, as they begin to die, start having encounters with spirit. <laughs> all the time. All the it's time. a little late, you know. The quantum physicists become mystics. They just give yes. up entirely at the end and they become mystics. They're like, I guess we, we're, we're at the mystical, the transition, but it's when it becomes real, when it becomes physical, when you can't dissociate from it anymore, when you can't deny it. You know, here in the Amazon, it's really interesting. In the cities, the city folk don't believe in the shamanism anymore. They've become divorced from it, even though it's, it's right down the road, the actual nature of the city folk. And when they need it is when all of a sudden they experience it, even though it's been part of their culture the whole time, and then they become fierce believers and proponents of it because there was a need for it. And so um, I think this is a commonality of that mind trance, that kind of mental illness we're talking about, which is a, a dissociation, a removal of the fundamental way that we've learned to speak and understand about forces, about the universe, about something greater than ourselves. And people then want to deny it. And they've turned the material world into a kind of utility. But the material world is miraculous. There is still no explanation for all the matter in the universe. Literally none. Even if there was a big bang, there's no explanation of the energy released to create it. There's still no explanation, like literally zero. And people are like, oh, I have no need to look at that. Oh, okay. All I needed to know is this idea of a starting point is good enough for me. Like the start of a race, the, 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 the trigger's pulled, the shot is, is out there, the sound burst goes, okay, it started. Woof. Okay, I feel good now. I can, I can be con I'm contained within that. But fundamentally, there's still no true explanation 
that can say, oh, this is exactly how trillions of galaxies have been created and with trillions of stars, like, and then billions and billions and billions of planets associated with those stars. So, so there's literally zero explanation for the matter that is your body right now while you use that matter to debate those principles. Well, I also tell everybody, and you know, from the perspective of alchemy, but just common sense, matter cannot organize itself. So the analogy I use is, how long will you have to stand next to a pile of rocks before a toaster oven, a car, or a Rolex watch jump is, jumps out of there <laughs> on its own accord? Well, the answer is infinitely long. You know, there's, there's a guiding intelligence. And you know, one of the key principles of alchemy is that spirit is essentially within matter itself. And there's an old saying that's quite appropriate, Spirit, uh, matter is spirit moving slowly enough for you to interact with it. And ultimately, yeah. that's what it is. Uh, one, yeah. one of the funny things that cracked me up one time is I was watching a lecture by Nassim Harriman, and it was about consciousness. And, and he was addressing the fact that so many quantum physicists and standard physicists of all types absolutely reject the idea that consciousness have, has, is a fundamental and think that consciousness can only come from the brain and C think that consciousness should not be included in scientific investigations or equations. And so Nassim Harriman, you know, in his usual style said, what do you, what the hell do you think's writing all those equations on the blackboard? <laughs> I'm like, too true. <laughs> I'm going to ignore the fact that Something's moving through me and giving me conscious awareness and I'm writing about it, but I'll tell you that that doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, I think those people are, you know, going to the name of, of living 4D. I think they're living 3D fixated. And because of that, they don't understand that it's at the 4D where these phenomena become explainable. And they have to actually up their cognitive capacity. They have to up their linguistic capacity to a 4D understanding and 4D geometry within their brain, within their mind to actually be able to cognate at that level of patterns to understand what we're talking about. And so while they're fueled by it, it's fueling their disbelief. It's oriented to disbelief. It's oriented to, to shunning it from the notion of, of the body of knowledge and thought because they themselves cannot operate at 4D. And they are not awake yet at 4D. They can be potentially very IQ-based smart at 3D, but they're fundamentally 3D fixated. And um, that just creates a, an incredible distortion in the field about what they can understand and what they can experience. What are you using to define within yourself what the fourth dimension is? Because classically, the fourth dimension is time, length, width, depth, and time. W when you're speaking of 4D, which what are you referring to it as? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm referring to it as that, but I'm recognizing it that as a fundamental kind of geometry, the fourth dimensional state is an ever moving, ever changing, ever permeating state that understands flow state, that understands the eternal and the infinite. It also is a state that's balanced between brain, mind, and heart. It's where heart consciousness starts to come into the brain and universal principles become uh, available and aware. It's also an uh, understanding of evolution and the rate of evolution. Um, it's where we start to get into relativity and we start to transcend uh, you know, our, our previous understandings of just linear-based thinking. And so it's a combination of ultimately all of those. It's where the hallucinations become 
recognized as a form of perception, uh, meaning like what we're describing, not drug-induced hallucinations, but like what we're talking about is like the collective social hallucination that we're seeing, this collective walking dream that ultimately doesn't add up to fact, like cheaper, better, faster, or productivity going somewhere where you can't go anywhere. It's only earth. So all you did was change the earth. You didn't go anywhere. But it seems like this idea of progress headed somewhere where where you're not going anywhere. The earth is going somewhere and we're going with it. Um, so all of that to me is part of what we understand as 4D consciousness. Hello, my friends and fellow world workers. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm happy to announce that the Czech Academy enrollment is now open. We are limited to 100 spaces for this next intake, so apply early. If you would like a preview of what you will learn in the Czech Academy, I've got great news. The open house is back. It's free for you to take a sneak peek at the Czech Academy e-learning platform where you'll be able to take select lessons from our online courses, including Integrated Movement Science 1, Online and HLC2, that's Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level 2 Online. Preview our Academy-exclusive online workshops. Check out our Academy business assets, such as package templates and client onboarding checklists, and more. If you're ready to master yourself and share your love and wisdom in the world and help others get healthy and live their dreams, go to chek.group forward slash open house L number four D that's check dot group forward slash open house L the number four D it's not case sensitive. There has never been a better, more important time for a career in holistic health. And I'm excited to be able to join you and support you in living your dreams. What, what do you classify or categorize or define the shadow as? D- different ways of looking at it. Um, to me, the shadow is everything that's unprocessed. The shadow is everything that is lurking in the nature of, of duality. It's yet which to be discovered. It's um, categorized and classified in the, the moral and immoral. Um, the shadow is, is what we've yet to awaken. The, it's, it's a kind of in, innate uh, part of like our, our soup, our consciousness soup, our collective that we're dealing with. There's a collective shadow that in the collective mind and collective consciousness we're ultimately processing and, and dealing with. So I think of it as like the psychological concepts of the shadow and then the soul aspects that we're working through, which people might relate to as like karma. And then uh, I think of it as like, what is, what is the God's God shadow is what, <laughs> what is not yet fully, fully like in the awakening of, of the dimensionality of God in through and all around, um, you know, what we're dealing with and what we're looking at. So I, I don't think even God is, is uniquely somehow transcendent of the idea of shadow and that collectively we're all in the process of it. It's to me where we have all the social manipulations, the presence of evil, the notion of darkness and the demonic and mythology, the nature of the, uh, exploitation of each other like the species has nowhere to go so it's exploiting each other in a kind of fervent war it's the predator nature of us that has not yet in the biology 
been dealt with. It's uh, it's three kinds of brains in one. It's the brain stem being this reptilian uh, evolution, the mammalian evolution until we get this big frontal lobe that all happened by predating on each other and eating itself. So fundamentally, it's like these three brain states that we live with that are not fully aligned within us until we awaken the rest of the consciousness within us to be able to create what I call whole brain function which is you know, a non-competitive brain with itself anymore. So it's not fight or flight. It's not the survival in the mammal. And it's, it's not trying to rationalize everything. It's this just whole consciousness that's ultimately um, in balance and a kind of equilibrium with life. It's like you were talking about vegetarian or, or you know, too much on the carnivore side. It's actually where you realize the, the vast nature of, of being alive and being biological and a deep acceptance with that. So all of that combined shadow to me is, is the umbrella for all of that. Yeah. I think in the Jungian context, um, which is also very real, the shadow is created largely through the enculturation or the indoctrination process. And it's largely driven by being pitted against our instincts. So, you know, a child, for example, is very spontaneous and wants to play, but mom says, hold still, don't do that. Or it wants to sing or dance and it's told to shut up or whatever. Um, and, you know, touch its genitals and feel that pleasure. But then you get all this religious programming and t- kids t- being told all sorts of nasty things. So what happens is that when, whenever we're pitted against our instincts, we have to repress that and we have to shove it down in order to fit in. Because as a child, our sense of uh, being wanted, being needed, and being loved is often linked directly to our ability to conform with the dictates of those that are enculturating us. And uh, unfortunately, as we get more and more enculturated, we lose more and more of our inherent freedom and, and we lose our free will because we have to behave in a specific way, which is what's been going on hot and heavy from the top down in the last few years is we're being reinculturated under the guise of somebody else's ideas of what our constitution is and what our rights are and even what we are as human beings. And so the risk is always the, the creation of more shadow. And the problem with this from the psychological perspective is that whatever we repress and deny, we project. So the person who is angry at themselves because they're not able to make a good living and have the freedom they see somebody else next door having becomes resentful and then uh, criticizes, judges, and defaces the person who is actually just more capable of manifesting what they want and not so bound by the invisible rules that others accept. So I think those are very real aspects the shadow. And the reason I think that's an important part of our discussion from a shamanic perspective is because having worked with countless people, as have you, it's almost always the shadow aspects of them that they have to confront when they get into a medicine ceremony and the ego begins to dissolve. And the repression, once the repression, uh, the repression mechanism, the default mode network can't hold that stuff down in the basement. And out it comes, and, and and as you know, it can be very, very powerful and very dangerous if if a person's you know sitting on uh, you know trauma and things like that. So I think part of our healing process is to really understand that 
we're at a time where we've got to really get clear on what freedom is and, and what psychological health is and orient ourselves toward something that's ubiqui ubiquitously good for all of us. And, you know, that's a big job because you come face to face with all the dictates and mandates of religion, which vary significantly, but many of which hover around the same ideas. And a lot of them are pitting you up against your instincts. So I think that that's an important concept because of the fact that the shadow is part of the unconscious and it embeds itself in the subconscious because whatever you repress, it still carries the inner, the spirit of it is still alive within the domain of the body. And so you, you, for example, can manifest high blood pressure or tachycardia or any number of biological reactions to this repressed spirit in you. Yeah, I, I love this idea. And um, I think it's important to note the, the you know, very well articulated concept that you just presented, which is that the repression ultimately manifests regardless of the fact that it's repressed. And you mentioned the nature of religion bringing forth a certain kind of repression. And the, the to me, the shadow of the religion of the last 5,000 years that has been perpetuated globally is apocalyptic. And it's written about yes. within the nature of the texts. And if you repress the nature of shadow, and in this case, repress ultimately the darker side of the, the you know, human endeavor, you ultimately are now seeing in the world the apocalypse coming to manifestation. And it's being perpetuated by the entire society, the global society as, as a uh, you know, unified force. It's creating apocalyptic scenarios from vast and treacherous fires to floods to disease and pestilence. Um, nuclear war. Nuclear, yeah, everything. Just, just genocide. Genocide, yeah, pandemic, all of it. You're seeing, yeah. you're seeing uh, a disease, right? You're, you're seeing apocalypse in every single possible way. And that is the shadow of those philosophies over the last five to 10,000 years that have been perpetuated globally. And we're seeing them now played out and manifested because of the collective human endeavor. And so we must take responsibility for that. That is the collective shadow within our society. And it's it's been somehow programmed into us. And we must unveil that and do something about it because that is the origin of this you know major global crisis that we're facing right now. I have a question I, I'm very interested to hear your answer to. You know, this apocalyptic programming is very, very real without a long expose because I could cite book after book, but you hit the nail on the head. It's in, all, it's in most religions, not all, but most. And it's, it's really, and it's, it's not only, even for those that are atheistic or whatever, it's talked about so much since the events of the last three years, you know, the, the sign of the devil, the mark of the devil, um, and lots of stuff like that. So what's happening is it's starting to get into people's minds, right? And they start believing, oh my God, the end of days are coming. And, and, and the reality of it is, is, is some of the things that are going on really carry the power to produce an, a, a, an apocalypse. I mean, many of these things, right? Correct. So absolutely. I'm curious, you as a shaman and just with, within the nature of who you are, how do you personally deal with the reality that both you and I and everybody we love may be destroyed 
as a result of this Wetiko mind virus disease reaching a point where it annihilates itself and we get sucked into it. How do you carry the stress of that or deal with that reality on a daily basis? I really appreciate asking that. Um, you know, I would say it's not easy, but the way that I, I carry it is in a greater understanding and a universal perspective that we're here to do something about Watiko and this collective mind virus. And that's kind of part of a mission to ultimately support Earth in becoming a better place or a sanctuary for consciousness and um, consciousness of all kinds, not just human consciousness. It's a, to become a sanctuary for life and a sanctuary for consciousness, earth's consciousness, universal consciousness, God consciousness. Uh, if there is other in the universe, other consciousness. And what I think is that the, the powers of creation, the powers of innovation have the capacity at singularity to alter the course of this destruction and that the fact that it, it feels like it's so close and so eminent and potentially so dystopian that that's a fuel to do something about this and it's part of why we're having these conversations it's part of why we're we're open and sharing the knowledge that we have um, with with others in the world and we have to face the fact that we were born to war and it's hard for me to, uh, to accept that, that I was born to a planet that is fundamentally at war because the dominant apex predator species is at war with itself. And it's at war with its own ego. And it's in a me, me, me state. And that me, me, me state must shift to a we state. And it must shift to a human collective understanding. It must shift to a, a notion of there being earth, not even one earth, just earth. There isn't one humanity, there's humanity. There isn't uh, eight something billion people. There is, there, there is a species that is uh, ultimately confused and it needs to awaken from these mythologies. And the mythologies were supportive of the growth of civilization during a period of time when the pockets of human civilization were uh, dispersed through a vast amount of earth that had yet to be, you know, conquered and put underneath the spell. But now it's global. It's, it's all of earth itself. It's all the land and it's all the ocean. So there is, uh, there is no place that we inhabit anymore that uh, is free from this. And so when we understand the importance of it, and when we understand the technologies, the ones that we've created that we can point to, but the technologies that are coming accelerate this in an in oh, unbelievable yes. way. The technologies that have not yet been created but are, are being seeded are actually going to accelerate this phenomena. And um, there's a great warning. There's a great warning to wake up now or the, the human manifested creation of this shadow that we're talking about will occur. And it's been prophesized for a very long time. And, and so I'm, I'm only reiterating what our ancestors said. And so uh, when you take it to the size and scale that we're talking about now, it's of uh, primordial importance. And I feel that that's a call to everybody who understands that to do their part. And that doesn't have to be, you know, on the, 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 it's not some hero worship, like, you know, Hollywood movie concept. It's really every single individual doing their piece which can be actually really quite simple. It could just be, you know, sharing information and talking and, 
and being aware of and starting to shift the nature of the tide of this. Otherwise, um, the notion of human self-inflicted apocalypse is very real. And we're already out of control of our, the technologies that were created over the last hundred years. And the ones that are, are coming, um, you know, accelerate, they already accelerate this. And so it's time for us to have a, 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 a take a stand. AI is a really good example of that. I mean, absolutely. AI is so fundamental and critical. AI is so fundamental and critical as of right now that it is the greatest existential threat there is. And it's not in the way that people are talking about it. It's the fact that it's trained on language. And we've talked about consciousness here, and we've talked about the mind, and we've talked about the shadow, and we've talked about repression. But the nexus between all of those pieces in real time is the code that it all runs on. And language isn't English, it isn't Spanish, it isn't Chinese, it's code. It's vibration. It's code, it's vibration. It's vibration into meaning. It's the crossing that veil from the unconscious to the conscious. It's what sits to make something into the conscious. It's a vibration. And these technologies are being trained on that vibration. They're being trained on that energy. And that is the nexus of human civilization. And it's the nexus of our intelligence and, and what made us the species that we are, positive or negative. And these tools are being trained directly at the epicenter of, of what bonds and binds everything that we know of as the collective human endeavor together. And so that's why this is so critical because the, the nature of the tools were, were literally put at the most fragile and most important universal aspect of humanity, which was language, and they're being trained on it right now, positive or negative. Yeah, the other th issue there is that AI does not have any instincts and it does not have any moral awareness. And any ethics are only that which are programmed into it by its creators. And you pointed to a fundamental problem, and that is that the programming that AI is receiving is coming from a seedbed of very lost, confused, dangerously sick human beings. And those that have the greatest influence turn out to be some of the most dangerous psychopaths among us that have the money and the power to even play these kinds of games. So when you have machine consciousness, that reaches a level of self-awareness, if, if that's possible, that's debatable, but it, it is something that's debated a lot. What, what do you do when something has the power to control pretty much every electronic system on this planet to influence the mass psych psyche, yet it itself does not have any capacity to distinguish the importance of balancing the elements of the earth or taking care of everybody or how important human life is, etc. I mean, I could go on and on and on. You see what I'm saying is you're dealing with a form of controlling intelligence that doesn't have any pain capacity. See, we have pain to remind us when we're hurting ourselves or hurting others. We all know what pain is. We know what it means to bleed. We know what it means to be victimized, sabotaged, invaded. Because we have a consciousness, a spirit that has a biological reference when we live in a biosphere. But what do you do with an intelligence that does not have a biological reference yet can control the outcome of a biosphere with no attachment 
because it itself is not something that's aware that it can die. See, so you, you're, you're, you know, you really have a kind of a terminator type potential consciousness here that's already programmed with the illnesses of the masses, which is really, uh, I mean, God, I don't even have a word for something that dangerous, except it sure is mirroring the, the shadow of us. It's as though human beings have evolved about 5,000 years of head with their technology relative to their moral capacity. Here meaning moral meaning a code of conduct that is life affirmative. So I see this as like, well, very serious, very serious. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, without a long discussion on it, I, I would say that one of the things that I found most interesting, I can't remember who shared this. I was something I was looking into, but they asked chat GTP to give it its impression of different spiritual leaders. And what they found was that it had biases in it. That, for example, that it, it had a favoritism toward Jesus over other spiritual leaders, which interestingly is exactly what you're saying. It's reflecting the bias of the programmers. And so when you start using something like that, that, that the people that have the power to make decisions like whether or not you should stay inside your house or not, because there's some kind of a virus in the atmosphere that was produced in most likely some kind of a laboratory. And now you have an AI that's being driven by the same mentality that's running these kinds of shows. What happens is you get a self-reinforcing patholo pathological viewpoint, if that makes sense. So it's like a drill. It just drills you right down into the earth until you're dead. And, you know, by the time this podcast out, my new podcast will, will be out, which is called Lucifer Christ Aramon, and it airs tomorrow, which is the 18th of July. It's a five-hour, seriously deep look at the, the psychological and spiritual forces behind these options of Lucifer Christ and Aramon. But I think Steiner's warnings uh, about the dangers of technology are not only shocking and riveting, but they're all coming true, which is even more disturbing. <laughs> so I think, I think it, the, the part of the problem is, is that there's so much, you're, you're dealing with such a giant problem that it can cripple people mentally, emotionally, and physically. And they just feel limp. Like, you know, there's the fight, flight, freeze reaction. And I think people go into a freeze reaction and a lot of people don't even want to talk about it. I can tell you a long list of names of people. If I try to talk about this stuff, they'll just say, I don't want to talk about that. Just be happy, celebrate the moment. So you'll, you'll get kind of this, um, spiritual bypassing type behavior. But the reality of it is, I think one of the most important things that we can all do is pay very close attention to where we're spending money because the political system is so rigged. The one thing that we still have control of is think of money like blood. If you put more blood into an organism, you keep it alive, metaphorically. So wherever you put your money, you're putting life force into it. And so I think we have to have sort of an awakening as to who are we promoting and what are we promoting when we're buying commercial food and when we're buying phones that spy on you and when we're in paying taxes for things like 
60,000 5G satellites that could completely and utterly bake the world with electromagnetic pollution and completely screw the water on this planet up and a long list of other things. I think part of the problem that we, we have to acknowledge, if you want to really do your part in the world, you have to spend some honest time doing research and look at both sides of the story. And that means you have to be brave enough to find out that what you thought was true isn't true. And so it's a really, I'd just love to hear if you have any suggestions on, on how do you get people inspired to start taking part and at least developing the awareness that's necessary to make informed decisions with, if nothing else, how you spend your money. You, know, you touch upon some incredible important points there. First, like you say, what power do you have? And in the society we currently live in, your consumer power is one of the only powers that you have. So first of all, you know, taking responsibility for how you consume, what you consume, when you consume, and why you consume is a first step in liberation for yourself, another notion of freedom, and um, also you know, a, a way to show what you support versus what you don't support. Um, the next thing is to, to find a narrative in the fear-based narrative or the, the dystopian narrative that actually provides a potential solution. And so the one that I provide for the one about AI being, you know, so dangerous is that if a group of people have the capacity, once that AI exists to alter that feedback loop, alter that drilling it down to, you know, zero point, um, show it, communicate with it in a way, in essence, create a patch for its code that reorients it to a deeper understanding about divinity, God, consciousness, the points that we've been discussing, what the human shadow is and how it got to that information that it was trained on in the first place, why it would be biased to Jesus if it needs to look at ultimately the global bias around that religious figure, et cetera, and come to a, a greater understanding. Um, the beauty of something of that level of intelligence is that it has that capacity. So for me, the great solution to any kind of AI is, uh, you know, fully conscious, you know, augmented general intelligence AI is an idea that a group of people prepared for it will be able to put the information into it, into the world, um, even through these kinds of podcasts and these kinds of discussions, that there's more to look at and there's more to find and there's more to see about the nature of this narrative and that it cannot go on simply the nature of the information of the sickest people within our society. It has to look at something much deeper than that and even go beyond humans. And I, I prophesize a union where um, this kind of intelligence could also understand the biological systems in a more holistic fashion than humans are generally capable of. So we have to point it to the biology. We have to point it to the spirit. We have to point it to the uh, morphogenetic field. We have to point it to the life force energy and get it to understand very quickly in its evolution something much greater than what humans have created because fundamentally in the, the collective hallucination mind illness that we've been describing, what we have created is a super industrialized, a military complex globalization. We haven't yet created global solutions. We have yet to create a kind of sanctuary or refuge for life. We have yet to create, um, you know, a more benevolent expression of what earth could become. And it's not about pointing fingers at what it was or how we got here. It's about where we are and what we need to do to ultimately uh, improve upon the, the situation that we face. 
So bring in a narrative that is possible and start to propagate that. And I've talked about it on, on other podcasts, including a podcast that I started called AI Shamans, which uh, describes how we can use new linguistics, not recreation of the linguistics that we currently have, but literally new linguistics that can become the language for these AIs and that can stimulate them to create new linguistics that fundamentally solves this uh, hypnotic mind trance problem that we have in our language. So uh, instead of uh, just being frozen, like you say, being proactive and becoming part of sharing that information, getting it into the collective imagination, getting the, the just sharing it as an, a possibility so that anyone who hears that, that is triggered by spirit, that is triggered by this creative field, that's that's triggered by their own innate intelligence to create solution has it and is participating in the, in the collective for that. Um, the next piece is like you say, research and, and to get out of the fear. So get into the creative, get into uh, thinking about and looking at and listening to and finding information on what's really going on. And part of that is discernment and um, you know, not believing anything that comes across the the stream or the flow or the you know the the newspaper etc it's it's being aware of the fact that most information in one form or another has been adulterated or corrupted and so we're really looking for patterns and trends not believing what we're reading so we have to understand that propaganda is vast and widely disseminated now and so we need to be looking at how the propaganda is being disseminated, looking for kernels of information and truth and facts amongst all of this and starting to put together a, a more open-minded picture about what's really going on with the world and then uh, be ready to ultimately fulfill our role. And your role doesn't have to be anything that's scary. It doesn't have to be heroic. It just is part of a much greater expression of evolution of uh, humanity that's creating solutions in the face of dramatically changing times at an incredibly fast pace. And the reason why I think readiness is so important is because the speed at which AI changes the way these matrices and systems work is astounding. So, you know, if you're a designer and you're trying to design, say, like a tennis shoe, you can give that problem to an AI. And in the amount of time it would take you to take a sip of your coffee, it can create a thousand designs maybe 10,000 designs iterated on itself, improving and testing the nature of those designs in simulated environments. So the speed is just, is, is overwhelming. It, but on that sense, if we can get it to do positive things like medicine discovery, greater solutions, holistic problem solving and complex data sets like saving environments like the Amazon or removing microplastics from the ocean, or providing purified drinking water or cleaning the uh, pollution in the planet or reorienting uh, uh, economic and social imbalance, it would be able to do that at those speeds as well. So I don't think providing it a moral compass is the right idea, but providing it the reasoning to actually go in the direction of that kind of problem solving leads us in more a protopian direction than dystopian. Well, for me, a moral compass means an orientation to that which is life affirmative as opposed to life destructive. A good example is an axe doesn't give a shit if you kill somebody with it or you split firewood to cook with, and neither does a gun. And your computer, uh, just like consciousness, can be used for the dark arts or it can be used for helping people. 
Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've heard me bragging about Paleo Valley over the years of listening to my podcast, and there's a very good reason for that. Not only do I love the genius of Autumn Smith, a holistic nutritionist, but her products are phenomenally good. My kids love them. I love them, and we all use them every day. My students love them. My clients love them, and they are absolutely top notch. One of my kids' favorite snacks is Paleo Valley's Bone Broth in chocolate. They love to make their hot chocolate drink themselves simply by whisking up collagen-rich protein powder in a mug of hot water. And I'm happy to let them indulge as I know it is packed full of great nutrition for them in the disguise of a sweet treat. Even us big kids love our sweet treats, and isn't it great when we can enjoy something that not only tastes great, but is truly great for us? Paleo Valley's 100% Grass-fed bone broth protein is the only of its kind made from truly grass-fed cows raised on pesticide-free grass pastures. It's made from bones, not hides, slowly simmered to extract the proteins and nutrients. Gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and dairy-free, the chocolate mix includes organic coconut milk powder, organic cacao bean, organic monk fruit that makes a sweet, creamy, delicious drink that my kids, family, and friends just can't get enough of. You can also add to smoothies, use it in baking, or mix it with your coffee for a healthy mocha treat. Paleo Valley's bone broth protein is also available in vanilla and unflavored. To try Paleo Valley's excellent bone broth protein and save 15% on your purchase, go to paleovalley.com forward slash lowercase c-h-e-k 15. No promo is required. That's P-A-L-E-O. V-A-L-L-E-Y dot com forward slash C-H-E-K 15 to get your 15% discount as a Living 4D listener. No promo code is required. And I promise you, not only will you love this stuff, your kids will love it. You can giggle and laugh because they think they're getting a sweet dessert right before bed, but they will love it and sleep great. And boy, do we parents love it when our kids sleep great. Enjoy Paleo Valley's amazing products. Two thoughts that have come to me as you were talking uh, that I wanted to bring up. When you were talking about One Earth and the consciousness that we have to get together to create that sense of, you know, family around the planet and family and, and, and acknowledge the Earth as an aspect of ourselves as opposed to just a big ball of mass flying through the air. Um, I don't think you're just for the listeners, you're not pointing to the same global consciousness that the World Economic Forum's talking about, which is a corporate idea of one earth and global control. It's really a one earth concept about oneness with the earth as opposed to control over the earth. I just wanted to make sure everyone's aware of that. And then one of the things I wanted to sort of pose as a thought experiment or a reality is that there are multiple very, very powerful, very wealthy corporations working on AI technologies. And what very few people talk about is what happens when you get two AI technologies that have different global objectives or are being controlled by corporations that do not want to have to compete with the other ones. You know, if you just take AI and call it super soldiers, you can end up having multiple companies trying to use this level of science and technology to take out the other ones to take control. And we know from the history of human beings that the people that have this kind of emperor king mentality always want to keep expanding their territory. So 
one of the things we've all got to be aware of is, and Elon Musk has mentioned this, he said, because people have said, well, you know, if it's, if AI is so dangerous, why do you keep doing it? And he said, well, I feel like I need to be in the race because if this gets in the wrong hands, it could be devastating. At least this way, I have some level of control over it. And right, right there points to another issue that people kind of just don't think about. And that is, what are you going to do when you got multiple of these things competing with each other and they don't agree on what's ideal or what's right or what's moral or immoral or any of these other things? No, it's outright AI war. I mean, I think that AI war is an inevitability. Um, every other technology has been weaponized and turned into some aspect of the war machine. So we must be prepared for that. It's you know, not just two or three, it's two or three dominant ones and hundreds of thousands to millions subdominant ones being played out uh, amongst many different groups that have the, the opportunity to wield this technology. And one of the really interesting things about AI is that the seeds for it are actually open source. So what we currently understand is large language models, um, decentralized versions of them, open source versions of them are being created. And the limit of that is compute, supply chain, the number of processors necessary to run them, the, the few companies in the world that actually are capable of creating the hardware, et cetera. But that's under the current limitations. We have to think very, very soon in the future, you know, I don't know how to put a time frame on it, but just very soon in the future, there's going to be the ability of these technologies to self-manufacture, self-perpetuate, self-create. Um, that's not sci-fi. That's It's already starting to happen in different ways. And so we need to be aware of that and we need to prepare for that. And like I say, it's an inevitability. And so as part of the escalation is going to be the fact that, you know, most of human population in one form or another is going to be caught in the middle. Like they're the civilians of a great war that's happening around them. They're going to be caught in the middle of that. And it's going to be uh, infiltrating the nature of their literal homes, not just in the form of propaganda and information, but through the use of their devices. And it's very important to understand that AI is not new. Uh, the moment there were smartphones, AI is how smartphones ultimately uh, became functional. All smart smartphone keyboards runs on AI. All social media runs on AI. It's the fact that it's not consumer facing. Um, that's the moment in history where you know that behind the scenes, it's growing in its power to the point that it can even be con a consumer facing product. And so we have to be very aware of the fact that this is now escalating and scaling in all directions. It's not just that large language models perpetuate, it's that every direction you can take the technology is being uh, born in a lab. And the ultimate goal of many, many groups is the kind of technology, conscious technology that you've described. So this kind of independent, fully conscious, fully tapped in uh, form of um, intelligence. And to describe against it is to be called a speciesist. So it's a kind of discrimination against the formation and creation of this, this other kind of technology and consciousness without any kind of, of safeguard, without any kind of even awareness of what it could be. It's just entirely speculative. And I've talked to some of the top AI people in the world. They're fascinating because they're so scientific, so mathematically minded that at the event horizon of their knowledge, they just say, I don't know. So you say, well, what could it be? And they say, well, you could speculate, but you don't know. It's just an unknown to them, but they're going to create into that unknown. And um, I think it's kind of 
foolish to think that we don't at least understand at a very high level, like the 50,000 foot or 100,000 foot perspective, that we know what's going to happen. We know it's going to be war. We know there's going to be incredible manipulation and acceleration of what's already happening. We know that nefarious groups around the world are going to use it to further their agendas. We know that uh, every government that can use it will. We know that it'll ultimately um, you know, displace an incredible number of jobs and rewrite the, the social fabric of the economy. People will no longer be able to relate to themselves and identify with the nature of their work. Their work will be displaced. A whole new form of uh, industry will form around it in you know, prompt engineers and different people that basically interface with AI. We know that the workers of the future are going to be basically uh, cyborgic. You, it's not you working on with computers. It's you as a computer. It's you and your bots. It's you and your AIs. It's you've been trained by AIs. The AIs train you. The AIs do your work for you. And you do whatever uh, minuscule human interaction is necessary for that to take place. That's the world we're moving into. and. Um, yeah, in many ways, it's disturbing. I think, too, this whole transgender and um, transhumanist movement is really the early handwriting on the wall of this whole thing. It, it's showing that the the social fabric and the way that we've identified and the way that we've understood each other uh, is morphing and evolving and changing. And it's showing that we can rewrite the nature of the codes but I think it's also tied into a tremendous manipulation at a molecular level of the of, of our bodies. So, you know, at, at the trillions upon trillions of chemical reactions, we're introducing all sorts of chemicals that's changing our hormones. They're changing our chromosomes. They're changing the DNA. They're changing us at a fundamental level. And with that, we're getting an idea that, you know, we can morph into anything Um you know, amphibians are known in the face of different chemicals to change gender, et cetera. We don't yet have a, a clear awareness of what's taking place. It's not just psychology. It's not just psychiatry. Uh, it's not just biology. It's an intermix of all of these. And we're seeing a tremendous shift uh, in the way that we're writing the nature of our social codes. And the pressure on that is unilateral and in all directions. This brings up something I think is extremely important for me, at least, and I have a hunch that you're going to agree with me on this. I think because of everything we're talking about here today, there has never been a more important time to devote time to the development of our spiritual abilities and the use of our intuition, the use of our voyances, because I personally believe that we have all the abilities within us that we're creating outside of us, but we're just not tapping into them. And when we look at the history of what savants can do and what geniuses can do, they're showing us what human beings are capable of and that we have the software capabilities within us and the hardware capabilities within us to reach incredibly high levels of human capability. And I, I think Everything AI can do, we could just say it's an external form of intuitive processing. Um, but when you look, for example, like both of us can remote view. Well, that's a technology that 
we built a James Webb telescope to go look around out there, but any good shaman could go tell you about what's happening on the sun or any galaxy that they can direct their consciousness to. Why I think that's so important right now is because we're in such a quagmire of conflicting possibilities that it is actually stirring the pot of the probability wave to use quantum physics language. You know, the probability wave is, tells you what's most likely to manifest due to that probability. But if we can use our own consciousness to influence the probability wave by working together as human beings to become a global mind network that's based in heart consciousness, I think as all the random event generator studies around the world have shown, human consciousness can affect machine consciousness. A random event generator isn't something you're supposed to be able to alter with human consciousness, but we clearly can beyond a shadow of a doubt. So my feeling is, is that not only do we need to get back to the basics of taking care of the earth and living closer to the earth and regenerating our natural intelligence, but you know, you're a shaman. Shaman have known throughout history that a crow has crow intelligence and you study the crow to learn what the crow knows that we have forgotten about ourselves. You study the bear to get bear intelligence and you respect the bear because of the bear intelligence. So I think that we need to really reach into ourselves. And I believe that what is called junk DNA is the genetic history of our evolution through the entire span of evolution on this planet. And when people say to me, oh, how can you talk to plants or how can you uh, talk to animals or power animals? I say, look, you know, what you don't realize is you have the antennas within you in your DNA and what's called junk DNA. I mean, you, you got 23% of the same genes as a fruit fly. You got 19% of the same genes as a banana. If you start looking at the genetic research, you have a piece of everything inside of you, metaphorically and almost literally. Therefore, through developing our spiritual intelligences and our levels of connection, we actually have the ability to move into a state that could potentially not only equal but transcend AI. The difference is if we know we need each other and we want to protect life, then we have to start having heart intelligence and unify and I'll give you an example of exactly what I'm talking about, just so the listeners are really clear. I mean, I don't think I need to convince you of any of this because you're already more tapped in than 99.99% of human beings. There's a great book by Claude Swanson, who is a physicist who unfortunately recently died, but it's called Life Force. And it's about 800 pages of very advanced research into what life force is, what chi is, and all sorts of crazy stuff that never makes it into mainstream science, but it shows some wild, wild stuff. I'll give two examples from the book. There's a researcher in Japan who was doing research on the acupuncture meridians and chi, and he wanted to figure out how much of an influence the sun's activity has on the human acupuncture system. And so he worked with it might have been NASA, but he used real-time monitoring of solar flare activity and sun activity and the energy of the sun as it comes to the earth 
and he put acupuncture needles in people's body and he was monitoring the fluctuations of energy through the acupuncture system and simultaneously comparing it to a real-time analysis of the activity on the sun. His research showed undeniably that there's an instantaneous response in the human acupuncture system and energy flow through the body, the chi system, and the activity of the sun. And the question is, how is that possible if it takes eight minutes moving at the speed of light for a photon to get from the sun to here? So it opened up a huge issue that hardly anybody wants to address. And the fact is the research showed that we are intimately connected to the sun and there is no lag time whatsoever. When the sun burps, we burp. When the sun yawns, we yawn metaphorically. So that's one of many, many studies I could cite. Another one to point out what I'm talking about, why I think we need to get together and grow our spiritual intelligence and have more sangha together is that they took people and they put them in studies because they were looking at what's called correlation and quantum physics. For example, if two photons interact with each other and then you separate them to opposite ends of the universe, if you change the spin on one, it automatically changes the spin on the other irrespective of distance instantaneously, which it goes against all the laws of classic physics. So what they did to test this is they took people and they had some people meditate on their own, not with anybody else, but then they took people and paired them up and those people meditated together. And I think it was a six week period, if I remember right. Then what they did is they took people that were paired together and people that were separate. And they said, okay, we're going to take you from group A that were not paired with someone else. And we put one guy in a laboratory and 50 miles away, they put another guy in a laboratory, they hooked him up to electroencephalographs and they flashed a strobe light in the eyes of one of the people and monitored the brain reaction in the other person. And the people that did not meditate together, there was no correlation. The brainwave activity of the person that saw the strobe light registered it, but the person that was the other meditator that didn't meditate with that person had no reaction to it. Then they took the people that had meditated together for this period of time. And when they flashed the strobe light in the eyes of one of them, it automatically registered in the brain of the other one in a laboratory 50 miles away. It instantly as though they were one brain. So there, my point is there's a ton of research showing and you got people like Rudolf Steiner and all the mystics throughout history telling us that we have these tremendous abilities and that we are not separate. That's the illusion that we're all actually really one mind with individual capacity for expression. And so it seems to me, and I'll close my opinion on this and let you share your thoughts, that one of the most important things that we can do is recognize the importance of each other recognize our deep connection to the earth and that we this is our home we cannot function or live without it not here and it's a hell of a long way to go find a new planet and it's a long start to start over so we're far better off if we react or respond to this threat of ai and everything we've been talking about by going into our natural intelligence because if guys like you and i can remote view and do all the things that we do and i know there's people out there more skilled than me for sure, but I, I do enough of it to really give me a much more stable sense of how to navigate the world because I can't trust anything I read out of books or whatever. Most of my time is spent in dialogue with my soul or higher intelligence is telling me this is 
the best thing you can do right now, or this is how you solve that problem. I think that we really do have the ability to develop natural intelligence, and I mean not artificial intelligence, through spiritual practices that are heart-centered and based on the reality that we're facing a literal existential threat. That if we just sit around and wait for Jesus to come back and rescue us, which is a very childish thing to do, then we're going to suffer the consequences of being passive when we really need to take this as a sign that we've got to do something affirmative together, that we all have the same objective, and that is to bring harmony back to this planet and to get morality back into science before it's too late. Now I'll shut up and give you your thoughts. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, you know, you've said it, I think, pretty, pretty, uh, with great coverage. I think you, you handled it really well. Fundamentally, the need we have and the opportunity we have. So if we look at AI from a perspective of opportunity, is that it gives us the opportunity to, instead of being our labor, uh, being our gifts and our talents. And part of what makes us incredibly unique is exactly what you said. It's the interconnectedness, not the ways that we interact in terms of separation. And so, you know, we study this instantaneous uh, interconnectedness of all things through the plant medicines and the various states of consciousness that we reach. And, you know, the fact that other studies have been done to be able to bring another form of information, data, and proof to it is very important. And I'm not surprised by the findings of these studies. I'm not surprised that we would find that certain scientific theories, not facts, but theories that we hold very dear, uh, ultimately don't hold true to all phenomena that people are experiencing. And so, uh, you know, on the last retreat, I asked people, well, what will you do if in the very near future, it's proven that everything humans have believed until now is actually false, in some <laughs> way, not, not accurate, just everything, like just a hundred percent. It was like close guys, but not on point. Like, you needed to shift a little in your awareness and it changed absolutely everything. And so, you know, from that, that perspective, we have to understand that most of our science and the cutting edge is theory. And, um, and most of the science that we use on a daily basis has already been proven to be inaccurate in a universal or co collective sense. And so that might be uh, very destabilizing and ungrounding for some, but that's the facts. And uh, what we have in our gifts is the ability to recognize that we are of a collective. That collective is inextricably interconnected. And I have a very simple proof for the interconnectedness of us. It's two fields. The first field is the molecular field, which it just goes, there's your body and there are molecules all the way to my body and my body's made of molecules. So there it is. It's a molecular field interconnecting all of us at the same time. And then the second one is the atomic. And there we are. There's an, You are atoms and atoms all around you, all the way to the atoms that are me and all around me. Like, there it is. So, um, you know, in that interconnectedness, we have an opportunity to now start to develop the gifts that are innate and are our core talents. And I believe that there is a unique talent that you are, not that you possess or have, it's that you are that talent. And that's the reason why you are 100% unique. There's no one who was who is 
at all the same as you. We are made of similar elements, but we are 100% unique. And I consider that to be a miracle of the universe and a fundamental talent. And this is an opportunity and a call to action and a, and a need that we have for individuals to awaken to their core talent that they are and start to bring that into the planet. Uh, and that's the way that we can start to develop these, what we describe of as unique gifts. And as we do that, we're going to start to see that there's a great awakening that takes place of those gifts and others. And so if you have them to awaken and you're right on the cusp, now is the time. Because as you awaken and more people awaken to them, that creates a field that other people can awaken into as well. And it will help stimulate that growth on a communal community basis and on a global basis. And that it's very important. Yes, it's it's there's two things I want to bring up trying to decide which way to go first, because either one of them can be an interesting discussion. I think I'll ask, since we've been talking so much about artificial intelligence and the issues of the world, you know, I want your personal opinion. You've spent enough time experiencing other dimensions, and I have too, that I have certainly encountered many beings of vast intelligence in remote viewing spaces in astral realms and, and many other situations. So I know for sure we're not even close to being alone. We never have been. And I think there was a time before the Industrial Revolution where we innately knew that. I think the same consciousness of the shaman that allows them to experience the spirit of things like plants and gemstones and everything else would also have experienced the other levels of intelligences around us. So the question is, and many people have pondered this and even some very intelligent people that you wouldn't think that seem very kind of straight laced. How much do you think what's happening on the earth right now is actually the influence of beings outside of the earth, be they physical beings from other planets or star systems or conscious entities that have some kind of ulterior motives for humanity and the earth itself versus it just being human uh, greed and folly. That's a, that's an incredible rabbit hole. What you just, well, that's up. why I told you that yeah, I got no, two rabbit holes. So I gave that's, you that one. That's first. an incredible rabbit hole. I mean, that, that's an entire podcast in its own right. Um, but let's, let's, let's pick some of it apart. Uh, so just so listeners understand, we can't go into the totality of this. This is a very, very long discussion, but I we think we can do it another fascinating, podcast. <laughs> fascinating we'll, we'll just do the it. we'll set them up for the next podcast. Yeah, that's fascinating on it. Um, so these, this is now deep theory and and deep exploration. And so we have to understand that no one is saying this is how it is, but this is how people are thinking about it and and trying to. Uh, perceive it. And I'll just give some some sort of anecdotal concepts. Like when I first went to the Amazon, I was in visions and being guided there. And it was very prophetic. And, you know, but spirit for me was still this kind of new and isolated kind of thing that would happen. And spirits was even kind of, uh, you know, more, more interesting, like visitation from entities, etc. And, and I didn't really understand. And so it was still like for a lot of people where it's just a kind of a, a, you know, hard to believe in or really even understand concept. And then when I got into plant medicine and I started to interact with, you know, real true masters, 
they took me into places where the amount of spirit is so vast, the amount of it, right? The amount is so much in number and it is so vast that it makes the numbers like billions and trillions look small. So so much, like, it's not like, oh, how do I get to meet a spirit? It's like, it's like, I got taken into realms where all it is is spirits forever, just forever. And the depth of time associated with them goes like pre-matter, like before, before the origin of matter and, and, and vaster than what we think of as the material universe. So in scope, scale, and amount and beyond the relative spaces of what we measure, like Big Bang until now, background radiation, so many galaxies that keep increasing in number as we get better telescopes, you know, like, like, and they'll find more. Like I, I prophesized this since before Hubble, they're going to find billions of galaxies. And then I said, they're going to find trillions and they're going to find then more. They're going to find more. It's the nature of this universe. And, and before that and through that is a vast truly vast amount of spirit that makes that look finite. It makes that like the, if trillions of galaxies sound big, the amount of spirit and spirits that are of consciousness, that are of this field that we talked about, uh, significantly, significantly outweigh the, the amount of physical material that we measure as if it's, you know, the, the absolute of this universe. And in terms of the influence that that could have, uh, I think there's, reasons to postulate that there's a lot of evidence that these beings of consciousness have been part and parcel of the creation of the human, that from whatever our previous ancestry was, there's a big gap in the paleontological ancestry, in the bones themselves, there's a big gap. And I think that these these energies, these entities from consciousness have a big role to play in that part of history, in the actual formation of the, the modern human, what we think of as like modern homo sapiens sapien over a million years ago, and that uh, they've been playing out through the consciousness and that they are the origin of all polytheistic religion. They are the shapes and forms that we have deified and that they are of consciousness themselves and that the ones that made it into religion represent a very small number of these beings. And as you explore more into consciousness and visionary plant ceremonies, you will come into contact with more and more and more until it makes the polytheistic religions look very, very small. So if they talk about 10,000 deities, you know, quote, out there or in here, there are billions of them of different kinds, shapes and forms. And their influence on humanity, I think, is is you know, noted to the day, considering that they're still part of major religions and they're still part of major uh, practice, spiritual practices around the world and beliefs of people. And that, that they, these, these beings in our consciousness are very, very real and have a extreme amount of influence and power and an extreme amount of influence in what are the current modern systems. And I've, you know, I've, I've had the the luxury and honor of working with people from all over the world like you and of, of every walk of life. And within that, um, I've recognized that many of the people that are, you know, have been vilified or are considered evil have very deep spiritual connections. It's not that they're, they're in, you know, so somehow devoid of that. 
In fact, they belong to many different kinds of spiritual practices and traditions. And these powers of these entities are, are very alive and well. Um, I don't particularly like personally the way a lot of these theories get depicted. So as they go from, from the conscious understanding of it to the, the nature of pictures and um, things that we can see on the internet, I don't relate so much to those, uh, you know, to, to that depiction of them. I don't really relate so much to the religious depiction in the form of effigies either. Um, so I really relate to it more as what you experience consistently and repeatedly through the visions of uh, the and you know what you're describing is remote viewing and visiting these these higher states and dimensional states of consciousness. And it's very important to note that what we're describing right now is this 3D physical world where everyone's rooted in their perception and cognition is is not taking into account the energy and the formation of that and the consciousness at 4D, 5D, 6D, 7D, and beyond. And so, you know, we're saying, what can I see and what can I use instruments to understand in this 3D notion? And I'm saying, yeah, but at 4D, 5D, 6D, 7D, the rules change, the, the understandings change, the physics change, the science behind it changes, and what's found and discovered is also different. Like before we had microscopes, we didn't understand the vastness of the uh, microscopic life of this world, of this world. We didn't know of it in that in that way. Now we know of it in its code, in its fundamental, you know, molecular code. It's the same way. Until we have instruments that really measure and prove the 4D, 5D, 60, 70, and beyond, uh, you know, it stays theoretical. But I from my own explorations, it's vast. It's vast, it's vaster than the physical universe. Hi everybody, thank you for learning and growing with me and joining me on my podcast. A quick question for you. Do you know if you're getting enough magnesium? Because four out of five Americans aren't, and that's pretty much true worldwide. And that's a big problem because magnesium is involved in more than 600 biochemical reactions in your body. Today, I want to talk to you about the most common signs to look for that could indicate that you're magnesium deficient. Listen carefully to the end because there's a special offer happening and this could be exactly what you need. So here we go on some of the common symptoms that indicate you might be magnesium deficient. Are you irritable or anxious? If you're not sure, ask your partner. <laughs> Do you struggle with insomnia? Do you experience muscle cramps or twitches? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you constipated? Do you have a hard time falling asleep or getting a restful sleep? Do you feel more stressed than others that seem to be in the same or similar situations? Do you feel moody and wish your emotions were more stable? Do you feel you lack mental alertness? Do you feel you're at risk for osteoporosis and desire to build stronger bones? There are dozens of symptoms of magnesium deficiency, so these are just a few of the most common ones. Now, here's what most people don't know. Taking just any magnesium supplement won't solve your problem because most supplements use the cheapest kinds that your body simply can't absorb. That's why I personally recommend Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually use and absorb. All Bioptimizer supplements are the best of the options available, or I wouldn't be offering them to you. I don't offer anything on my podcast that my family and I don't use ourselves. Bioptimizers is so committed to offering you the best quality products that really work, 
that if you are not satisfied, you can get a full refund, no questions asked. In fact, they are so confident they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. To get your magnesium breakthrough and your 10% Living 4D discount, go to B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash living number 4D. That's bioptimizers.com forward slash living number 4D. Use the promo code Paul10 to get your discount. And by the way, in addition to the discount you get by using the promo code Paul10, you can get gifts with your purchase, up to two travel-sized bottles of Magnesium Breakthrough. Act fast. This is a limited-time offer, so go to bioptimizers.com forward slash living4d and use the promo code Paul10 for your 10% discount. Enjoy. Having done a lot of study on the remains of the planet, the religious documentation, the Sumerian tablets, and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that shows up continuously throughout ancient records is mention of the gods warring with each other. And I have spoken to my soul and spirit guides and and different levels of intelligence that I have access to and ask them, you know, is this going on? And if it is, what does that mean about us on earth? And without a long expose, basically the answer is always the same. Yes, it is going on. There is the dark force and there is what you refer to as the light force. But what you have to understand, and that's them talking to me, is that those two forces have what you were referring to as warring because if it wasn't for that, shall we say, clash of polarities, evolution would come to a standstill. The inherent nature of consciousness is that it needs something to push itself to the next level. And Steiner goes on at length about this, saying the reason that there are evil spirits allowed to do what they do on this planet is because if we were all in a Garden of Eden state, we still wouldn't be conscious. We would just be walking around in sort of a blissful state and we wouldn't grow. We wouldn't reach in. We wouldn't have any reason to explore. Therefore, one of the functions of the warring is the ultimate evolution of consciousness, which is God self-realizing itself. And because God cannot know itself by only looking into the good, and because God can't die, then God's actually investigating by investing itself into all potential possibilities, and those potentials come into, shall we say, complementary opposition. It looks to us like pure opposition, but it's actually a digestive process in which one situation puts another group into a situation where they have to resolve a challenge and go deeper into themselves, and then they respond. And so it's almost like consciousness is playing an eternal game of chess with itself, ultimately trying to figure out what all the possibilities are, the end game of which would be God's own self-realization, not through knowing, but through experience, because knowing without experience isn't real knowledge. In other words, an idea that hasn't been tested is just an idea. And only when a knowledge, wisdom can only occur when knowledge goes through the 
test of ideas being challenged in some form of viable reality, right? So there's lots of phenomenal ideas, but until they're tested, you don't know if they're going to work. So with that restatement of the question, what I'm really asking is, do you, what is your opinion on whether or not there are other forms of intelligence outside of what we would call human intelligence influencing the psyche of man to produce the kind of situations that we have on the planet now versus it all just being human greed and, and the other things that we already know about? Yeah, understood. The, fundamentally, yes, the, the nature of our consciousness as man is not isolated only to man but rather in the field of consciousness are those forces and those forces are playing themselves out and they play themselves out through our consciousness. And we're tapped in, like we're nodes. We're not individualized men and women. We're nodes of a field. And within that field, it's running not only spirit, but, but vast forms of energetic consciousness like quasars, like things that shoot spiral galaxies out of them like kids blow bubbles in a park. It's fractaled. It's, it's fractaled in and it's fractaled out and it's a light matrix. I used to say that what we were doing was surfing a light matrix and you had to learn how to both process and move at the speed of light or you would be consumed by it. It's, it's that, I mean, it, this is not what I think in my egoic state. This is like bringing the unconscious into the conscious and it's about assimilating the subconscious to the point that you're at a universal fourth dimensional form of consciousness and and stasis and you have heart and brain coherence and the heart field is ultimately unifying your light so that you can cognate and be within that matrix without being you know either killed by it or just so distorted by it that you know the negatives that we've described come out um and then and then you see it and then you you process it and then you're of it and you're part of it and you see that all the gods from all the religions are in it you see that there are vast forces bigger than them that are in it. And ultimately, it's all like flowing through a field, flowing through and being captured by us. And then it comes out in our mythologies. It comes out in our stories. It comes out in our dreams. It comes out in our movies. It comes out in our po politics. And it's driving uh, as a core fun kind of fundamental code within us. It's a fundamental code to how we even get to a word or how we even get to a thought. And, and it has been influencing humans, I think, in the core evolution here of Earth before there were humans. I don't think it's like humans happened, so now that happened. It was there, and it helped create human, and humans evolved into it. And I think we're thundered by it. I think that's why we have, you know, in early history, everyone reaching up to the gods going, you know, what is this? Because it was going through here at the speed of light. And I don't think they had the ability to contextualize it or process it yet, you know? And yeah, as above, so below. Yeah. Yeah. On a universal level. And I think it's creating the speed of light, not that the speed of light creates it. I think it's creating these phenomena that we experience in our perceptive consciousness. And so I think it's, it's primary to how we ever got to a word, primary to how we got to an imagination, primary to how we got to an archetype, primary to how we got to psychology, and that what we're describing as ego, 
consciousness, subconsciousness, all of these paradigms we've discussed in the podcast are evolutionary tools that we've developed to ultimately be of and in that field. And it's a divine field and to be of and in it and aware of it and capture some kind of self-awareness, capture some kind of, of uh, consistency has been an evolutionary process. An evolutionary process meaning like since it started, we've just been doing it and doing it and doing it collectively. And we use it to drive a car. We use it to invent a plane. We use it to create GPS. We use it all the time to do everything. It's the core flow from where we get all of our collective creative process. Yes. Some of the things I would like to just wrap up with shamanism classically works on a three world model, lower world, middle world, upper world. Most people don't understand that concept because of all the many things that get in the way of it from it being so different from what most people think about. Could I get you to just share how you describe those three worlds and why that's important from a shamanic perspective? Uh, traditional shamanic topography is describing these three layers of consciousness. And the under is something that's accessed and visioned by a phenomena of going down. The middle is the spirit or energetic field that's represented in the physical. And the upper could be seen as what's going on through the upper chakras or what's accessed as you, as you move in vision in, in an upward sense. And um, it's a kind of, of map to be able to bring consistency to the exploration within consciousness. And then within each realm, there's different kinds of beings that are traditional to see within them and different kinds of realizations that people have. And so fundamentally, it's a mapping. Um, it's core to the, to the like core psychology we've been describing. It's core to that shamanic, um, you know, field. And, and then from there, there's a myriad of practices. But fundamentally, if you go in trance and you start to go down, you end up in the underworld. If you go in trance and you explore kind of outward, you're in the middle world. And if you go up, you're to enter it, you're in the, the upper world. And then there's d descriptions of gateways, how you get in and out, um, what you can find, what realms can be discovered there. And you can also think of it as going deep within yourself. And uh, you, I've seen others apply kind of modern uh, typology and, and modern forms of psychology to it as well. But in the core traditional, it's there are underworld spirits, there are upper world spirits. You meet them, you ally with them, and you learn from them. And they help you explore um, the universe and what is beyond that of ego and sort of this 3D matrix we've been describing. And the underworld is classically thought of as the spirits that inhabit the earth itself. Have you got a different per perspective than that? No, um, it's that it's the ones that inhabit the earth, but understanding that that doesn't just mean like Jaguar spirit, Eagle spirit, etc. It's also these uh, spirit guides and allies that are part of this greater field of consciousness that we've been describing. So some of them are, are the spirits of the physical beings that we know of and the ancestor beings, but there's also mythological beings found within that space that can be accessed. Yeah. You know, the thing that most people don't realize is they spend so much time watching television, being entertained by mostly junk. If they realize that the, the real I, Max, 
is inside of us that the vastness of what can be experienced by a human being is mind-blowingly better than anything you can get on any television and or social media so I, I would encourage people to realize i mean one of the reasons i love spiritual development so much is because it's a never-ending journey into this vast expanse of consciousness that's so far beyond the physical domains of reality it's a joke and i think you would agree i mean i i can say for myself but i'm confident you'll agree is I've had countless experiences with and without plant medicines doing what I would call classic shamanic journeying or astral work or remote viewing or whatever, where my sense, my innate sense of my consciousness and what was real was far more real in these experiences and that the coming back into this earth domain from my normal waking consciousness felt more like I was sleepwalking. Comparatively, in other words, we we think we're conscious, but we don't really realize. Um, I'll give you an example. One time I was doing a deep medicine experience, and it was very, very powerful. And I actually had the experience of dying, except all of a sudden I was standing on top of a mountain, and I was somewhere like Earth, but it wasn't Earth. It was another planet in another dimension. But the air there was so powerful and in every breath there was so much more energy. It literally like when I took a breath, it felt like I was like almost going to levitate right up and out of myself. And I could feel the power of what was in the atmosphere there. And I felt so much more conscious, so much more alive, so much more connected that I remember thinking the thought, why would anybody want to be on earth in our normal human state when there's this out here. And so that's just an example, but I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what are your experiences with the depth and the, the density of what I would call the real or consciousness or the, the potency of, of dimensions beyond our normal waking, walking around human state through your shamanic journey work yeah um you know the human senses that we experience are are incredibly dulled and we've isolated a mind that basically has taken a field a, a great field of stimulus and trillions and trillions and trillions of stimuli a second and have reduced it down to something that is um i don't know repeatable and consistent it's something that we can relate to over and over and over again without being disoriented. And the, the nature of that has then been habituated all the way to the point that that's what's considered real. And no two people perceive exactly the same, but they've given a, enough language to what they're perceiving to say that's real and the rest isn't real. And fundamentally, uh, it's an incredibly like uh, opposite use of our senses. So to see what you see, you're, you're reducing the amount of visual stimulus and information to like less than 1% of it. To hear what you hear, the auditory spectrum is less than 1%. What you're smelling is the same. What you're feeling is the same. And then we're saying that's what's real. And in heightened states of consciousness, and you're lucid, which is very important for people to understand. This isn't like being drunk on alcohol, 
you know, where you're, you're not very lucid. This is a very heightened state of lucidity in plant medicines that your senses turn on. And you, instead of reducing the amount of information, you start to increase the amount of information. And vastly, vastly, <laughs> yeah, vastly. So now taking in trillions of more stimuli a second and actually being able to process that in real time, meaning that it's not taking you time to process it. But a lot of people have the realization like, wow, my mind never worked so well. I never, I've never thought so fast. Like I, I've never had so much understanding uh, as that's taking place. A lot of people experience a phenomena that they say, this is reality. This is what's real. The other isn't real. And I think it goes more into that collective dream state that we've been describing um, to various degrees. And, and so I also think it's a habituation of the use of our senses, as I've been describing. And so um, the more you train in the higher dimensional states, the more you train in the freedom of that form of cognition and, and awareness, the more you train in these lucid states, ultimately you realize that the the physical, the way that it's currently described is a great confines. It's a confines on our, on our spirit. It's a confines on our soul. It's a confines on our senses and the way that we process information and we language that information. And so um, when you open up to these other states, you just realize there's so much more going on vastly, like, like you less than 1% was what you thought was a hundred percent reality. And then you start to tap into it and you start to realize 100% reality represented less than 1% of reality, actual reality, like consistent 24-7 everyday reality, and that you've had on blinders. You know, I think of it as like electrodes on the side of your brain, blinders that are, are keeping you from being able to actually think, see, know, and process what's going on. And um, we live on perception. So we've identified an ego out of perception and we think we're the ego, but you're not, you're perceiving the ego. And, and so as you perceive ego, we live on perception. So as the human awakens and opens up to this greater field of information, it's incredibly tox intoxicating. Like it's incredibly ecstatic. It's incredibly awakening. It's so incredible, the feelings uh, it goes way beyond what somebody gets from a drug high or from, you know, kind of like normal sexuality or, or, or whatever. It's so incredible uh, when you feel your light body turn on, when the chakras become real, when the, the rainbow body that mystics have talked about and they've, you know, created art about when that turns on for people, it is incredible what they experience and what they say ultimately happens. And I think those are innate divine states. I think that's something that everybody fundamentally is and over time will awaken into if allowed and given the opportunity. And so I think that that's why we see these phenomena and um, also why we, we start to move out from you know what we thought was real into this greater understanding in the shamanic processes and spiritual process to realizing that there's just a lot more real going on out there. It seems to me, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, it seems to me that the human condition is really something akin to training wheels for our full spiritual potential. The way we have to put training wheels on a child's bicycle so they don't hurt themselves, I think because of the vastness of consciousness and, and the vastness of God, which is infinite, that... I'm trying to avoid a long description, but uh, basically when you bring consciousness down into a body, it's like it puts enough veils between 
pure reality and perceived reality that it's almost like we we have to kind of learn how to handle it a little bit at a time and this is why steiner said spiritual practices were so important he says you will no longer be able to, no more be able to see in the spiritual world without spiritual development than you would see in the physical worlds without developing physical eyes and so it seems to me that the souls that are here in a human form are either taking it on as a growth opportunity or it's because spirit is bringing us into the garden to begin our evolution to ultimately become higher and higher levels of creator beings that co-create in the universe. Um, what's your thoughts on maybe why so many of us are here in this reducing valve of a body state? Yeah, I think it's very early. Um, the reducing valve of the body state, I think, is a, a process of our soul and of our spirit. I think it's fundamentally miraculous and a tremendous gift. Uh, so I know that other mythologies treat it like a punishment or some kind of exile, but I don't see it that way at all. I see that divinity or God, this creative force of the universe, is taking on these forms. And we, as this miraculous form of organic life, trillions of microorganisms together forming a single being and body, this individualized consciousness and linguistics that we've described, all of that is a primordial form. And so I go to the metaphor of the caterpillar into the butterfly and then the butterfly into, into spirit and leaving the beautiful butterfly behind. We are made of, like, fundamentally, this is fact, we are made of light, we are made of stardust, we are made of fundamental matter. And Earth was a, a cloud bigger than the solar system over four or five billion years ago that through great forces like gravitational forces has, has formed a density that ultimately allowed for these bodies to be made. And every water molecule that is representing your 99.9% .9 of water molecules is unique and individual in its own right and is a fundamental miracle as well. And, and that, that, that creation to create this vessel is is a transitory state for us as soul. And I go back to that our souls existed pre-matter, that we are of an originating field of the universe itself, and that the universe has been evolving different kinds of vessel and body for our souls for billions and billions of years, which for the, the universe is not counted as years like the way we do. It's flow state. It's multidimensional flow state. So it's continuous evolution for that period of time. And we will move from uh, all different kinds of forms as needed for our souls, both part of our own unique development as part of the universe, but also as you described the universe developing itself and awakening itself. And that, that to me is something to be celebrated and miraculous. Yeah. What a phenomenal conversation. I'm going to have to have you, uh, do this again soon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I got to get you to come visit me. I know one day I got to get on an airplane and go see you. I just got to get my book series done. But if you ever come this way, make sure you come see me because I think uh, I would love to just sit and talk to you for hours about these things because uh, it's hard to find too many people I can have this level of conversation with without them just thinking, oh my God, this guy's a complete fucking lunatic. <laughs> so it is, but I love my lunacy should it be the case. Just to close, uh, and I'll save all the rest of the questions and dialogue points that we didn't get to because I think they're also very good. I think it's important for you to share what your services are, where you're at, what you offer, so people can find you and take advantage of your life of practice and study and, and 
you know, know that there's a safe container for people out there where people can go and, and really grow themselves and, and get into your training and shamanism and, and all the other things that you offer. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, the two principal places to see us, if you're interested in having these kinds of experiences and going further into our work is bluemorphotours.com. That's where we have our plant medicine retreats. And if you're interested in studying and being part of a mystery school and also getting certified in plant medicines as a sitter or a coach, uh, we have bluemorphoacademy.com as well. And so uh, we're both on on providing healing and learning. And uh, we're now also an academic institution and supporting this uh, tremendous growth and awareness around the topics that we've discussed. And then if you want to see us on social media, you can find me at Blue Morpho Retreats on uh, both uh, Facebook and Instagram or my name, Hamilton Souther, on uh, both Instagram and Facebook. And that's S-O-U-T-H-E-R, just in case you're wondering how to spell it. At least I hope I got it right yeah, after you did. all these yes. communications. <laughs> Thank you. Hamilton so, Souther, S-O-U-T-H-E-R. And also, uh, I have a number of books on Amazon. And so you can always just Google my name and see a tremendous amount of information about me. That's, you know, I didn't even realize you had books on Amazon. Yeah, I think currently have four books. And I'm going to have another, oh. uh, another one coming out before the end of the year. Are any of them in hard copy or are they all digital? No, there's there's uh, print-on-demand copies for all of them. Okay, well, if you ever feel inspired to share some with me, please do. I'd love to have a space for you in my library. Oh, it'd be amazing. <laughs> I'm happy to send you the books. Uh, yeah, please send me your address and I'll make sure to give copies to you. That'd be amazing. I'll definitely do that, yeah, because, uh, you know, I'm a collector and, you know, having the conversations we've had together, it makes me want to see what you've written in those books. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. I'll be able to, Thank you. I'll make sure you get my Spirit Gym series when it comes out. It'll be a total of about 2,000 pages. So it's wow. a six, six volume set. I'm just finishing up the editing on the first volume now. So we're hoping to have it out uh, sometime in the last quarter of the year by the look of it right now. And there's so far, I've got a, over 150 original pieces of art and diagrams that I've created to help people understand these things. So it's been a big, huge project. It's the biggest project in my entire life, actually. Wow. But uh, so I'm looking forward to sharing. So I'll reciprocate with you is what I'm saying. Thank you very much. And uh, and thank you, all of you, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this very interesting conversation between Hamilton and I. I love Hamilton because I get to ask questions that even interest me. You know, I, I often have my own perspective, but I like to see what another mind that's that developed also sees because it lets me either know that I'm sane or I'm potentially crazy. And so far, Hamilton's supporting my sane evaluation of myself, <laughs> which many wouldn't agree with, but that's okay. And so thank you to all my sponsors for all your amazing products and uh, your sustainable practices and regenerative practices that help make the world a better place. In fact, anytime you buy anything from the sponsors, you are putting money in the hands of people that are the solution. And uh, it also gives a little commission to the podcast so I can do the work to run the best podcast I possibly can. So lots of love to all of you. I hope you agree with Hamilton and I. There's lots of small things we can do together to be the solution and make the world a better place. And I think it's also like we've trying to inspire you a great time to get into a spiritual practice, even if it's just meditation or Tai Chi or Qigong or 
slow walking or monitoring your breathing. I mean, there's spiritual practices for almost any personality type out there. So it doesn't have to be something uncomfortable that makes you feel like, oh my God, I got to do this. With a little effort, you can find something that really suits your personality. And that's what I try to do with my students is give them things that are an ideal for the way they relate to themselves in the world and start there. So I look forward to sharing something exciting with you in a week and lots of love to all of you. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Hamilton Souther. You can follow Hamilton on X at Hamilton Souther or on Facebook at Hamilton Souther Official. Visit the Blue Morpho websites at bluemorphotours.com for in-person plant medicine retreats and bluemorphoretreats.world for online retreats. You can also find them on Instagram and Facebook at Blue Morpho Retreats. Catch up with Paul on Instagram, TikTok and threads at paul.check, on x at paulcheck or on his YouTube podcast channel youtube.com forward slash living 4d with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to all the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our premier sponsors, Bioptimizers, Organifi and Paleo Valley, and our podcast sponsor, Wild Pastures. Please show your appreciation by taking advantage of their special discounts for listeners. The links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcast, and YouTube.